Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, boys and girls. What do they say at Disneyland? Boys, and, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> this is Trish Lambert, the Tolkien Maven, here with another episode or a session of the Film Film Project, and I'm joined with, by uh, joined by. I'm led by Corey Olson, the Tolkien <laughs> professor. Dave, unfortunately, can't be with us today, which is why you're hearing my dulcet tones, but we'll do our best. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm really looking forward to today's session. Today's session is really fun. I, I, I love this idea. This is one of the new things that we're doing. We did this before, but it's still new because it's only the second time, only session of its kind we've had uh, so far. And that is uh, the desire. One of the things that we're wanting to, to correct this year is to spend more time during the season uh, talking about and kind of giving some input for uh, uh, the creative work that people are doing, uh, uh, you know, and in, in, in our online community here, our film film community. Um, so we're going to be talking about several questions and issues that have come up, a bunch of kind of fun miscellaneous things uh, to discuss and think about which I'm really looking forward to doing. Last time we had one of these sessions, we ended up getting caught up in discussing the frame, which was great because we hadn't really been thinking about the frame. So I'm really super glad that we did that, but we left a bunch of other questions uh, on the table. So um, uh, we're going to go back and cover a bunch of that stuff here today. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, lots of really fun theoretical issues, the kind of thing which would be a digression in any other session, but is the central thing that we're talking about today. Uh, so that's going to be fun. So watch, we'll end up talking about episode content. <laughs> that's right. We're going to digress. And <laughs> we're, sorry, we'll, we'll digress on to discussing episode five accidentally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably so, knowing us. Um, okay. Uh, first, a couple quick announcements. Uh, 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 one, just a reminder that Myth Mood is coming up at the end of June. Uh, registration actually closes after, I think, the first week of June. So uh, we're now in the last uh, two, three weeks to sign up for Myth Mood if you haven't yet. Um, reminder about Mootcast, that Mootcast is now happening. You can now register for full live streaming content of Myth Mood, all of the sessions, all of the weekend uh, of Myth Mood, and also access to a, uh, a digital archive uh, recording of all those. So even if you want to see con uh, concurrent sessions, uh, you can go back and watch them. Uh, and, and that's available, uh, also, uh, to anyone who attends, uh, any part of, uh, MythMoot in person as well. Um, so just a reminder about that. Um, a very special event this week, uh, on Sunday, May 19th at 2 p.m. <laughs> Eastern time, Thesis Theater with Trish Lambert. Our own Trish Lambert is going to be presenting her thesis, uh, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. You want to talk about that a little bit, Trish? Tell people what's, yeah, what's, well, what's coming I'll, up. Yeah, I'll tell people yeah, a little bit what's going on. It's a long time coming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have... My thesis, the thesis of my thesis is that the Lord of the Rings Online, which all of you know that Corey and I play and actually are quite involved in, um, is actually literary. And, and to a larger extent than that, expands the question out to, you know, are, liter are video games literary and what would constitute that? And my answer is yes, any more than a book or a movie is literary, some more so than others. So, I mean, that's the answer. But to really talk about that and, and I, and I, and I guess my ulterior motive also was sort of to spotlight this ama the amazing work that they do there, um, is specifically in Rohan and Dunland, and looking at the way that the way that it's literary is that the developers, whether they knew they did this or not, have used very um, classic 
literary archetypes that any reader would recognize. And it's those archetypes that allow the players in the game to really get immersed in, in the game. And so I use Dante's Inferno uh, for a, a, a big chunk of my examples. And it's really, it's just really, inter I mean, I was really interesting is yeah. going into it. Even doing it was even more, I got even more out of it, you know, than I had when I first got the idea going through. And so it's, it's the reason for Dante is because what they've done in the game is they've really represented the impact that Saruman is having both in Dunland and Rohan without ever really showing him much. You don't mm -hmm. see him very much, mm -hmm. but you feel his impact throughout. And it's very believable. Plus, where there would be one worm tongue there's bound to be more, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it's so believable when you go into Rohan and, and you really get invested and you meet and you, you, you know, this whole, you really get involved in the society. It's, it's amazing. And they stayed true to Tolkien, which I interviewed Chris Pearson, who's the world builder. And, uh, you know, he shared with me sort of, you know, what they did to create these two lands because they're not really very well sketched by Tolkien. Right. Right. Especially really Dunlin, obviously, stuff. yeah. Especially Dunlin, like yeah. one sentence, I think. <laughs> right, exactly. We get yeah. almost nothing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, it's, 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 it's so it'll be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I've been, I've been saying for a long time that I think that the Lord of the Rings Online is one of the best adaptations of Tolkien I've ever seen. I, you know, I know of. Um, and but but you know, Trish, I think that it's so important. A lot of people, um. It doesn't even occur to people to think about uh, video games in the way that video games are, are constructed, mm -hmm. even as like adaptation, you know, uh, mm -hmm. exactly in that way. But but no, the kind of storytelling and world building and just the, 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 the kind of analysis of Tolkien's text um, that has gone into uh, that that game and the, the, the plot yeah, and story absolutely. writing and, and, and dialogue and text of that game. Very, very interesting and definitely stuff worth worth writing about and thinking about, I think. So that's... Uh, and, that's, you know, in a larger sense, I honestly think that future generations, the way they will consume literature... I mean, let's face it, Shakespeare wasn't literature when he was alive, right? So right. let's think right. about what we mean by literature, right? But I think the way that, that literature will be recognized and consumed in the future is through multimedia channels, is through graphic novels and games and movies and, you know, short videos. And I mean, it's just... Mm -hmm. I think it's changing, you know? I think in... in a few generations that's how you'll be talking about literature yeah where you know it, it makes me think of uh, it makes me think of the references in uh, uh uh star trek deep space nine and voyager to hollow novels right that the idea of like right. how the novel has changed you know it's no you, you no longer that's just right write a book you know it's now that's right this, janeway like, was literally the governess in the in the in the in, in jane Eyre, was it? yeah i think it was jane Eyre. yeah 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 yeah, um, yeah, that's true. No, that's I, true. so so yeah. I mean, just to 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 think about the ways in which uh, you know uh, technology does change the parameters of you know interactive literature and stuff. It's mm -hmm. Really interesting. Um, really interesting. But anyhow, yeah. So, so you know, that's that's cool. But we're gonna have a session like this. So I'm assuming. I mean, I have obviously never done one, but I think it'll be like this where people can put in comments and questions. Yep, and, definitely. I mean, it'll be exactly like this. I don't think I'll see him, but Sarah, who's my uh, thesis advisor, will be talking to me, and she'll be seeing him moderating the questions. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope everyone will be able to join us at 2 p.m. on Sunday uh, for that. Um, one last thing, which I didn't, I forgot to add to the announcements because it's so recent, I forgot that it existed, uh, is we're having a session. Today is Friday. So tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, Saturday, the 18th at 11 a.m. Eastern time, 
uh, is going to be, I'm going to do a, uh, a review and discussion of the Tolkien film. Um, uh, a lot of people have been wanting to talk about that since it came out. I've done sessions with Maggie Park, uh, one of the Signum faculty, um, on the, the trailers as they have come out, as we've been sort of anticipating the Tolkien film. So she and I are going to get together again and do our uh, reaction and uh, discussion uh, uh, tomorrow. So uh, would be, uh, I hope you guys could uh, make it for that. All of these things are on our events page, signumuniversity.org slash event. Uh, you will be able to find registration links for my Tolkien discussion tomorrow for Trisha's Thesis Theater on Sunday. And of course, for Mythmoot as well. All right, so let us move on. And our first creative challenge of the day is music commissions. All right, any scenes, characters, or themes that need musical themes? For example, do we need a special theme for reconciliation, and when would it be used? So let me think about that. Okay, um, the we've been talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, and but of course it's not. The, Remember that the concept of the theme is, in a sense, not necessarily reconciliation itself, but like we're looking at the different options here, right? Some people will not reconcile. <laughs> some people, so there, there are some people who like for whom reconciliation is like irrelevant, right? That they, you know, for them it's not even on the table. There are others who sort of fail at reconciliation. There are others that succeed at reconciliation. Um, the need for reconciliation and the different ways in which people kind of respond to that is the sort of the, the, the larger theme. And like, do people, and, and, you know, so we also talked about forgiveness, right? And that reconciliation and forgiveness are not necessarily the same thing. You can forgive someone without reconciling with them, uh, and you can reconcile with them, but not forgive them, uh, for, for what they did. So, um, exploring the different, uh, sort of, uh, um, concepts there. I like the idea of a a musical theme being associated with this, and I'm trying to think. So, I mean, obviously, now here I go, like making suggestions that are kind of above my head. Um, that is to say, uh, I should be the last person who is saying to uh, Philip Menzies has been our film film composer since season one uh, and uh, knows way more than I do about uh, music and how to do this kind of thing. But of course, thinking about, uh, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation, sort of harmony and disharmony see, you know, seems like an obvious kind of thing to do there. I would, I would, I would, I would wonder if there would be some kind of some kind of like scale of harmony and dissonance that could be used i'm not even sure if it's necessarily a particular theme maybe like particular modes or something um i'm not quite sure uh but i think it would be interesting if we had um a okay so there's going to be there's going to be moments in the season when we have this sort of impulse towards dissonance, right? This impulse towards fragmentation. Um, certainly, especially as Sauron and Thuringueto get involved, right? And start spreading rumors and, and, and trying to undermine things. Um, remember we were talking even just in last episode or last session, we were talking about episodes three and four, um, 
we were looking at the, you know, like the Thingo and Melian becoming suspicious, right? Like what's going on? You know, what lie? What is this darkness that, that, uh, uh, you know, is in Galadriel's past? You know, that is obviously really upsetting her. What's happening here? All those sort of chains of, um, of, um, suspicion that we had, uh, um, uh, that we had been talking about. So when, it would be interesting, I think, to have, as I say, some kind of spectrum, right, of um, whether it's done by dissonance and harmony, whether it's done uh, by sort of the shifting of musical modes, maybe, maybe you know, uh, uh, or, 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 or some kind of modulation of, of key or even, Tony, as you suggest, maybe of, uh, of, of, of time signature as well. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it would map out best, but I do think it would be interesting to have this sort of spectrum with on the, on the, 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 the one end, right, on the dissonant end, you would have... Uh, Sauron and Thurin Grethel actively sowing seeds of discord, right? And then you would have a little bit past that, you would have um, suspicion, right? When like when people are doubting and suspicious of others and fighting, right? Also, like the the conflict between Karinthir, uh and uh, um, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Blanking the guy we talked about last time, the whole time. Uh, um, Angrod, thank you. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, I was going to say, don't look at me. That was two weeks ago. <laughs> I know. Uh, anyway, yes. I'm like that other son of Penarfin whose name is eluding me at the moment. Angrod, yes. Um, so again, when, when there's like open conflict uh, as well. Um, and then, you know, again, moving further up, you would get uh, sort of like doubt and uneasiness, right? Which wouldn't be actual conflict or suspicion of another person. Um but this sort of unease, right? I was going to say unrest, but that's sort of more associated with season three uh, uh, and season two, really. Um, but but I mean, like that sort of like uncertainty, right? About like what's going to happen? How are we going to work things out? Are we going to be able to work together? What's going on? And then we would have like again continuing to move down the move up, I guess, the spectrum. Uh, we would then have. Reconciliation, right? People actually reaching out and attempting to bridge gaps uh, and to uh, to join with each other, and then on the like the far end of the spectrum, right? The very opposite of the kind of active discord, you know, desire to create discord that we get from Sauron and Thorin Gwethel, um, we would get forgiveness, right? Um, and people forgiving each other, we would deploy this presumably in uh, um, uh, with. Galadriel forgiving herself, right? I mean, to me, I think one of the most beautiful moments of the whole season really should be, you know, one of the emotional climaxes of the whole season, I think, uh, should be the moment um, when, you know, the conversation between Celeborn and Galadriel, when he, like, gets her to forgive herself, right? When, when he helps her to, 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 when he shows forgiveness to her and helps her to forgive herself, um, that's huge and really i think sort of emotionally maps onto the entire uh, uh onto the entire picture or the whole even even the whole political picture uh in uh in beleriand so i don't know the mechanism for that phil what exactly that would be whether it's a particular theme that then gets sort of tampered with whether it's a kind of formula of tampering that can be applied to other themes Right. Not really sure. Again, I, I kind of leave this to your musical judgment um, 
what's the best way uh, to accomplish that. But I think that there should, the, you know, the, there should be that kind of progression. It would be kind of cool, I think, if it were not a theme itself, but some kind of manipulation of themes, whether it be modal, whether it be, um, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, like I said, I, I I don't know nearly enough to make that kind of a concrete suggestion. I, I have a but. I have a question, and and it kind of goes to the next one too, I guess, with the Star Clubs. I mean, are we going to have uh, themes for characters? Like, is Galadriel going to have her own motif? Is Celebor going to have his own motif? I mean, I, I see a problem with that, which is that there's enough significant characters in this story that we could end up with like hundreds of motifs. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It could end up sounding like a like a sound effects board, right? When uh, <laughs> somebody comes in, uh, yeah. Yeah, no. Because, um, um, you know, like you were just saying with this reconciliation, I mean, Galadriel and Kelborn played into that. So, you know, if if each of them had a theme, do they, you know, uh, maybe there's like a limited number that we do that get, because like Galadriel and Kelborn, we're going to see throughout the whole thing. Right. You know. I would say, so um, thinking about what we've done in the past, right? We did have particular themes associated with the different mm-hmm. Valar, but we see did. there, the reason, the justification for that clearly, I mean, you know, apart from the fact, like they're the Valar is that <laughs> what the Valar stand for, like who they are mm-hmm. is sort of thematic, right? So the Yavanna theme that, that we established back in, I say we, that Phil established back in season right. one, We'll expect to hear. Right. Going we'll forward. expect to hear right. at times when there is, you know, growth. And th- so when the when the sun comes out and and the the flowers all bloom, clearly the Yavana theme has to be playing. Right. Um, similarly. Oh, I know. When we meet Goldberry, that'll get him really. That'll get the whole controversy going. When we meet Goldberry, <laughs> play Yavana's theme. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, she's like she would be like a blending of like uh, Olmo and uh, Yavana. Right. 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 Ivana, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I could see, yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, I, I do wonder, like with Galad. I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that we see all the way through the third age at this point. There's not, is there? I mean, you know, uh, uh, Kirden, but he's off stage. Uh, yeah. So, in the case of somebody like Galadriel and Kelborn, when Gandalf shows up, you know, there might be a need to do some kind of motif for those characters but i would say we want to limit it i would imagine yeah would and, and again i was like yeah that's what what i'm kind of building towards there is i do think we would want to do that only when there is like when we're associating a character with a particular idea or concept mm-hmm. right? yeah again like that that's what sense. we did with all the valar i mean we, we you know yeah, we now have right. things that can be you know so when we play the Manway theme, when we play the Olmo theme, right? When we play the Aule theme, it, it means something. Like there are particular associations with that, um, that can, that, that can work in lots of places throughout the whole show. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think that we could do something like that with the, and, and Ellen, you're absolutely right. Tom Bombadil needs a theme. Right? <laughs> we absolutely need a Tom Bombadil theme. Uh, and, and it needs to be in what's the meter that he, that he talks in? Oh, well, he's, yeah, I mean, he speaks in, in, uh, uh, dactylic, uh, hexameter, but, uh, <laughs> there you go. I'm not, I'm not sure how you, how you would render that. that exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be compatible with his, with his, with his meter. You're right. I mean, it's how he, it's how he talks. Um, well, you know, and Ruth brings up, I mean, there's a lot of ways to slice and dice this. Like she's talking about maybe the regions, you know, is there a region? Yeah. Do the Sindar have a theme? Do the, you know, Noldor have a theme? I mean, 
That's really interesting. I mean, this thing about the star-crossed lovers, I could totally see some some kind of motif there that we hear with Gladriel Kelbar, and we hear it even with Aeol and Aerithel in a different way. Mm-hmm. We hear it with Arwen and, and Aragorn, Baron and Luthien, yeah. Aowen and Aragorn. You know, it's like there's a lot of places where that theme of a, if we want to call it star-crossed or, you know, pairing theme yes. could yes. go. I mean, I could definitely see that, as opposed to having, like, a Galadriel Kelbar. Or in this case, do we need to think for our star-crossed lovers of Galadriel and Kelbar, and do you use the star-crossed theme with Galadriel's and Celeborn's motifs. I don't know. I mean, right. Like you say, I'm I'm speaking way beyond where I really should be sitting. So. Well, no, I mean, it's it's good for us to think about. When, when I come to think about, like, making specific, like, here's how you should accomplish this in your composition. That's when I'm like, getting way above myself. But, yeah, I mean, I tend to think that it would be more fruitful for us to be thinking. I, I really love the, 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 and Phil started doing this last year with like his fall, you know, the fall theme. Well, I mean, he, the fall theme was, was from before, but he started doing sort of more conceptual themes, mm-hmm. right? Rather than character oriented themes. And that seems to me the way to go. So like if we do have, you know, yeah. if we do have like a, you know, a, a reconciliation and forgiveness theme, which can be, you know, it can be sort of effect so that that theme can be played in a way which suggests like discord and suspicion, right? But it's, it's just a modification of that central theme. Um, uh, I mean, that would be pretty cool if we had a theme which like win play to right means forgiveness and like joining together and uh, uh, but can be like altered until it's the, you know, and warped until it is the uh, it, until it is the discord and suspicion theme. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So as far as the uh, k- kind of thinking of the ideas, that's certainly one idea. I'm not sure about. Hmm. I'm not sure. So I'm thinking about Goadriel and Celeborn. I Do we need a lover's love? Th- is more the yeah impeded yeah. Love. love impeded is more if you because that's true of you know Baron and Luthien their love is impeded you know Arwen and Aragorn love is impeded I mean it's more like you know love with lots of obstacles kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I, so. The question I'm thinking about right now is, do we need, do we want, I guess is what I really mean, do we want a lover's theme? Because I'm thinking that might whitewash things a little too much, right? Like, do we need a, like, this is the theme of people who are in love, right? <laughs> um you know, I mean, as opposed to, these are the theme of people who are killing other people. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, let's have the last one, but not the first one. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Because, I mean, though, I mean, you can kind of, I don't know. I mean, you can make an argument for, like, battle, like when people are fighting in battle. Like, I don't know. It's a well, little bit I, more I mean, uniform. I would love than... to see some kind of a love scene that also then gets stylized. Like, for example, yeah. when Sam talks about Rosie, it's the love theme in a hobbity kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. rendition. With kazoos or something, you know? <laughs> Not with kazoos. <laughs> I think now we're going way over our heads when we're suggesting <laughs> instrumentation. But yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to see something because, I mean, this is, we're in really dire times right now, you know, and there's still going to be a lot going forward. I mean, the Games of Thrones fans are going to love this because there's going to be blood and blood and blood and blood. It would be nice to have a little bit of a flower here and there, you know? Absolutely, absolutely, and that's and we do have the flower theme. Now let's see, uh, a couple, 
Ah, interesting. So Ellen is suggesting a, a, a revenge slash kinslaying slash doom theme related to the fall theme uh, that we had before. Um, a combination of bagpipes and boobazalas. <laughs> no. No, Phil, that's not how it goes. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, I, I mean, the idea of, uh, yeah... Well, we have the fall theme. See, oaths are more complicated because... Hmm, I don't know. I mean, Phil, it would be interesting to hear what you could come up with for, like, an oath-swearing theme, right? Um, because it would be really nice to... One of the things that was that, of course, is is so wonderful about having a really good soundtrack is that you can say things without having to say them, right? So rather than uh, having, you know, giving characters hokey dialogue, which obviously our writers would never give to our characters, but rather than giving them a ho hokey dialogue like, well, you know. It looks like that oath that you took is coming back to bite you, isn't it? Right? Like, rather than having to remind, uh, 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 you know, our viewers of, like, the power of the oaths and everything, we just have an oath theme, right, which, which comes back. So, you know, when we, the oath theme plays down the road, when Finrod swears his, uh, uh, his, his oath, right, um... And then later on, when Baron comes to Nargothrond, right, the oath theme is again playing in the background. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing is, I think, a really good idea. I, I really, I really like that. Um, yeah. Um, sorry. Yes, Phil. I was speaking to Phil Boswell. Uh, we have two Phils. Phil. Uh, Philip Menzies is our composer. Uh, Phil Boswell is here commenting. And so when I, when I, but it is not Philip Menzies who is suggesting the bagpipes and Boo Uh <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, yeah. And Catherine, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, differentiating, you know, having similar, having, you know, themes, which are then can be differentiated through instrumentation. Right. Um, is a, is a really great idea. So, because I mean, the, the, the theme, uh, you know, my, the theme that's playing during the Oath of Fëanor, right, shouldn't sound exactly like the Oath of Finrod, because Finrod's oath, though it binds him and, you know, gets him in some trouble, is not a horrible thing. It's not. It's not this like terrible blasphemous vow uh, like Fëanor took. It's just. It's. 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 It's fundamentally different. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I do think that there's uh, there are ways in which that same theme can be adapted in various ways, and uh, and uh, Phil Menzies is really good at this. Um, yeah, um, yeah, good. And, and Ellen is pointing out that that same theme could be played sort of discordantly or harmoniously uh, uh, as well. Yeah, no, exactly. So I do like the idea of an oath theme. I think that would be a really good idea, um, and. Um, we're obviously going to need a footsteps of doom theme when we get to 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 uh to Turin, right? So it might be good to begin working on that earlier rather than later. Um because the footsteps of of doom are definitely going to be uh uh to be to be coming in at various points. Um I don't know if we would need to to, to deploy that in this season or not. Um 
but certainly that would be kind of a fun thing if we could have an oath theme and that sort of doom theme and between the fall theme, the doom theme and the oath theme, right? We can certainly get, uh, get at the, uh, um, the oath of Thanor, right? In that way too. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, oh, good. Ellen, I agree with you. The Doom theme can be like the, the personal soundtrack of Emros, right? <laughs> Who is uh, very high on uh, the way in which the Oath of Feanor has doomed them all. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like that. Um, anyhow, so I think that would, those things would be great. As Back to the Galadriel and Celeborn question, though. I find myself resistant to a theme for their relationship, and the reason... I am resistant to that, is that um, their relationship is so centrally tied to the core theme of the season, the reconciliation and forgiveness theme, right? That I would want their the music playing in their scenes to be really tied with that. I, again, I think that the, the scene which pr- probably culminates in their betrothal, right? Um is going to be the sort of purest and most beautiful instance of forgiveness in the entire season. So that's really the place where, I mean, if we, so if we have a a different, you know, lovey romance theme for them, then it's going to, it's going to, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it, it could displace the central forgiveness concept, which I think would be really, um, really cool. Um, Anyway, so yeah, so let's. So I wouldn't necessarily want to do that, though. Trish, back to the point that you made, Galadriel. Obviously, she. I think she kind of does merit her own theme in some way, or maybe her own unique instrumentation, some kind of thing, She's which is it. which is a, would, a, a yeah. some kind of musical signature of some kind or other. Whether whether it be a separate theme, whether it be an instrumentation choice, whether I, something about it. I agree. There should be a distinct kind of Galadriel flavor that we would probably want to create at very think about how useful that will be when we get to the return of the king right and uh you know and Sam's rope and all, you know all, there's so many scenes uh yeah. when uh you know the Galadriel a Galadriel theme the, which we could the then combine fire. with like the Elbereth theme right uh I mean right yeah that would be uh super helpful are you saying you don't think poor Kelleborn should have his own theme Look, you can't say we're not doing justice to Kelborn in this season, right? Kelborn has never gotten such a spotlight as we're giving him here. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 giving we're giving we're giving Kelborn more credit than anyone in the history of Kelborn. So we can start off with Kelborn having his own theme, but over the years, it like shifts more and more into Galadriel's theme. So by the time we meet him in the Third Age and Lothlorien, you don't even notice his theme anymore, and it's all Galadriel, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kelborn's theme gets subsumed in the Galadriel theme. Yeah, it becomes yeah, merely yeah. an echo of the Galadriel theme. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That would be true to people's uh, uh, opinions of him when they meet him in the Third Age. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh Yes, oh. I, emphasis is on thematic versus character leitmotifs, it sounds like, is what Marie's saying. I, I think that's accurate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, definitely, I definitely agree. Um, 
Phil Boswell has a really interesting point. He was uh, anticipating uh, you know, a theme played for Lilith, uh Turin's sister, um, which, I which know. you know, to kind of tie that in, thinking in advance of some of these major themes that are going to be a, a part of these central stories later on, right? It would be fun to think about how the Lilith theme um, can kind of play through both to anticipate Lilith and to also, you know, echo Lilith. Um, yeah. So I don't know, do we need a um, transient, transient period of laughter and happiness theme? <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it's how I would define it. Uh, yes. Laughter and joy, which uh, which which fades all too soon, right? Is that a is that a theme we can uh, we can get? Um, but anyway, um, yeah. And Marie, it would be connected with mortality. Well, mortality, obviously, that's a theme for the next season, right? The season five issue is going to be thinking about mortality and uh, and stuff, and that certainly. Uh, we will definitely want a mortal death theme, right? That's definitely a thing that is going to be a major concern. Um, but anyway, okay. All right. Uh, back to, see, Philip's other question. What style of music would we like for the Marath Adarthad? Ah, so, like, not soundtrack. Like, what music will Elven will Elvish minstrels play at the Marath Adarthad? Because presumably there's going to be music and dancing at the Marath Adarthad, right? Um Okay, and he says he had in mind an 18th century ball and Baroque-style music. On the other hand, we may want to set the tone for other feasts that will happen and introduce the mystery of fairy, which we've not really done up to this point. Hmm. Well, one of the challenges with the mystery of fairy is that we don't have anybody but fairies around, right? I mean, the mystery of fairy really becomes a thing when humans come in. Um, in fact, it's almost like it's almost like a parallel to the language thing, right? As long as everyone's talking the same language, we have them all talking English. Um, it's only when they encounter somebody else speaking a different language that we realize they were speaking uh, Elvish at all, right? Similarly, uh, these are all elves. They're all fairies, right? And so, that you know, that, but they're all of them are. So it's like <laughs> normal. To, it's only when humans come in that we're like, oh, whoa, these are elves, right? Um but uh, uh, anyway, so so I, I mean, it depends on what we mean by it. I do. I wouldn't want it to be straight up 18th century ball, like not just like exactly like 18th century ball. There does have to be something. Um, there does have to be something uh, uh, fairy in it, but at the same time. I wouldn't think that the Noldor wouldn't. The, I mean, I would think the Noldor would be would go for very highly technical music, don't you think? Um, I mean, I don't think that uh, you know the Noldor just do Enya. I, I I wouldn't think that would be the case. Um, yeah. Uh, It'd be fun if the Noldor were more like big band sound. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, just, 
<laughs> it would be like just not it would be so unusual right it would be you know? very unusual yeah because i'm yeah. thinking percussion you know a lot of times we we limit percussion to like the bad guys or to moments of conflict and stuff and i was trying to think you know what what could the Noldor have that's like not you know it would be kind of out of the box in terms of its sort of like type of music oops sorry about that that's not the bird actually oh that's not the bird i was gonna say i thought no, that, that was, was buddha in the background yeah <laughs> microwave buddha does such a convincing uh uh microwave uh, impersonation yeah (laughs) but anyway yeah i was thinking it would be fun to something out of the box you know i think no oh well yeah ellen's saying she thinks nolder and sendaro both have some kind of percussion aspect to their music anyway yeah yeah but no i mean i do like um i do like because you're right we don't want to we don't want to restrict drums to uh, to the bad guys. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess again, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to like. There's a try Canadian to con- artist by the name of Lorena McKennett, which I would imagine Phil probably is aware of. She's her band is a really interesting mix of instruments from, you know, lots of different cultures, and her kind of music is kind of interesting because there's kind of a little bit of a tradition to it, but there's also like a, a you know, a different like a different interpretation of it so something mm-hmm. like that would be kind of cool mm-hmm. um yeah i mean I, I i you know again i i feel like as soon as i start suggesting musical styles or things i'm in way over my head like you know uh more people many people know so much more about music than i do that like i don't i'm not even going to make a suggestion um i do like the idea of a more f- both of like formality that is i would think that both the music and the dancing of the noldor would tend towards the ornate intricate and highly structured right um and so in that way i find baroque style music like the idea of baroque style music in 18th century ball dancing seems to me right um especially you know think about the think about the the way in which 18th century ball dancing involves like groups of people all moving in and out of each other. Now it's in fairly simple ways. Like now we put our hands up and we walk around in a circle. Whereas I would think the Noldor would be much more intricate than that. I'm sort of imagining the, um, you know, like the dance floor at a Noldor do right. Would be, uh, this sort of amazing, uh, uh, interconnection of, uh, uh, of people doing, um, uh, very intricate, um, uh, I am you know, so punchy this morning, but I have to say, you know, like, like I was thinking about what you were just saying about you put your hands up and you walk right. in a circle, and you know how they show, like, in the movies or whatever, they, you know, the partners come apart and they come back yes. together and they converse. Yes. So I was thinking that scene where they're dancing, and yeah, you know, the Noldor are much more fancy. What they do is when they when they part, the guy does like a triple backflip. <laughs> well, see, I don't, I don't know that it would be athletic, though. See, that's, I mean, it could be. There could be athleticism involved. I just mean intricacy of mu- of movement in and out and among all the rest of them. Um, yeah, I, not not necessarily uh, athleticism, though. I mean, again, it's not like that would be totally inappropriate, uh, but. Um, um but anyway yeah yeah so uh <laughs> it's I, I, you know i have no objection to athleticism phil that's uh uh phil boswell that sounds fine um but um but yeah definitely formal dance moves i mean there's no way that the noldor would just be like 
expressing their personality right through their like idiosyncratic I'd movements say like and yeah say yeah, but, yeah, yeah potentially potentially yeah. is more the big band type group as opposed to the noldor yeah. maybe i don't like know i mean potential again like i'm not going to i'm not even going to mention styles because like i what do i know and many people know know better um so i'm trying to kind of restrict myself think... to general principles yes it are more like maybe i do think a definite contrast between the two is yes. important. Whichever, yes. however we do it, you definitely want to make it clear that they're like very different. Um, yes, agreed that they are very different. And uh, you know, Ellen is right. The the it is Sindar who are more associated with music mm-hmm. than true. Noldor. I mean, remember the 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 music was strong was much more strongly associated with the Teleri, right? And they're related. So, right. like singing and piping and music, like that's a that's mostly a Sindar thing. Um, and I don't think that's Maglor's the exception. What you just said about the Noldor being very, you know, precise and very stiff, almost stiff. As, I mean, you didn't say stiff. I said stiff. But I mean, I keep thinking of like very, you know, like harpsichord type. Well, I would say structured, you know, not stiff. I would say structured. Stuff. Yes, that's it. Structured. structured. Yeah. Um, but and still yet, not as not as expressive at all as what the Sindar would be when you see. Yes, and I agree with Marie that the green elves would be on the far end Even of the more, spectrum, right? Yeah. So we'd have the Noldor yeah. on one side. Oh, they'd be like you know rock and roll. They'd be like. <laughs> you know. In my metaphor, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they would be much more, much more spontaneous, maximally spontaneous. I, I think, yes, exactly. Um, uh, good. Now, Tony yeah, points out, of course, like they would do all improv, so it'd be like jazz, right? right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, no, uh, Tony points or reminds us that um, uh, the 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 Nolor would be more associated with singing uh, and words. Actually, I would say even more. So the, I would actually associate, um, not that we're getting much Vanyar music, certainly in this season, but, um, but I'm thinking the Vanyar would actually be the most linguistic of all of the, so that, ah, so the Vanyar, obviously the Vanyar rap, Clearly, like that's 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 obviously what happens. Oh um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. They probably have poetry slams and everything. I think. Oh, 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 absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yep, yep. Um, clearly, clearly. Yeah. No, not beat poets, Phil. No, they would be <laughs> rappers. Rap, the ultimate linguistic genre. Oh, my heart. Sorry, I love rap music. Rap music is... You know, there's also the idea of chanting. You know, there could be chanting of some kind. There yeah. could be chanting, but there needs to be, like, the play and beauty of words. Yeah. Not, of, not, of, not, of, not of music, but oh, of words themselves. Yeah. That's why, again, that's why right. rap. Rap is the one that's all about uh, the, the actual sound of words and making music right. with the sound and interplay of words itself, independent of actual, uh, of actual tone, right? Of actual, of right. actual music. Um, uh, see, no, Tony, not Gregorian chant. I think Gregorian chant is actually exactly the opposite of what I'm talking about. Gregorian chant, the words are practically irrelevant. You can't understand the words at all. Uh, it's just tone, right? No, no, the music of words is about the interplay of words 
themselves, right? I'm telling you, rappers are the only people that I know who actually accomplish this in its, in its pure form. Uh, it's the best. Anyway. Um, uh, but anyhow, okay, so... Um, yep, yep. Elvish, Elvish hip-hop, and, and I would be lying if I told you I hadn't actually thought about that. But anyhow... Um, um, I'm going to uh, start digressing and talking about Eminem soon if I don't, uh, if I'm not careful. So I'm going to divert from that. All I'm going to say is at Mythmoot this year, I'm planning to give a talk on rap music. So uh, oh I'm completely great. serious. I'm um, going to be doing so a, a detailed are... analysis of uh, of Eminem. So uh, oh I my mean, goodness. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I was going to say our little writing team could have a splinter group, right? Who's... <laughs> Oh man, I'm telling you, I would love to collaborate with somebody on like a, uh, I, I have this sort of, uh, hyper fantasy, like fantasy in the sense of like, you know, with zero, uh, 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 chance of ever like actually accomplishing it. I would love to have a like Silmarillion rap album in the style of Eminem. Oh man, it would be, it would be oh, the wow. best. I would absolutely Marie love that. Marie has helped perform the rap battle between Finrod and Sauron. Oh my goodness, Marie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's that absolutely should have uh, uh, that. I, again, I purest form, purest form. Uh, I'm telling you, it is not. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what maybe that's how Luthien puts Morgoth to sleep. <laughs> no, see, Luthien, I don't think so. With Luthien, it's about music. I, I'm not trying to undermine the power of music. I'm just saying, yeah. like, when uh, I, I whenever I'm whenever I'm uh, I whenever I'm listening to rap music, I'm thinking about that line from the Valaquenta about Manway and the music of words. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Tony, I agree with Luthien. It would be pure melody. Um, and uh, Marie, I also agree that Luthien is, is sort of dancer first, singer second. I think that's true. I mean, I think singing is also very important for her, but yeah, that, that whole thing, it's not, uh, Rap, definitely not Luthien's thing. Um, but again, I think the Vanyar would be all over it. All over it. Uh, but now we've managed heartily to digress from our series of digressions here. So, um, we did it. I love it. Yes. That's good. Uh, anyhow, uh, so... Uh, setting the tone for other feasts that happen. Um, because you know we're gonna definitely have that. Immediately, I thought of the woods in uh, yeah, Mirkwood. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course we're gonna get a now, series Randall of very important the so. fe- feasts. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So, so, so let's so. let's let's think for a second in broader terms. We're thinking specifically about the musical style and the dancing at the Marathoner Thod. But first of all, like we're taking for granted that they're getting together and having that like singing and dancing is a thing that they do. I'm not challenging that, but we should probably back up a step and say, okay, gathering of elves, right? Big old elf party at the Marathon. What, what, what's an elf party like, you know, when you, yeah. when you're bringing together lots of elves into one place for purposes of merriment and celebrating, what do they do? What happened? There would be a bouncy house. There would be a bouncy castle. (laughs) Could you imagine the Noldoran bouncy castle? Holy cow. Yeah. Um, 
Ooh, Ellen, what a wonderful question. Uh, alcohol? Do they get we drunk? So. Do any of the elves get, get completely soused? Do a bunch of the elves get completely soused? Is that a thing that happens at, uh, at, at uh, elf um, gatherings? Hmm. That's a really good question. Yeah. yeah, I could definitely see having some alcohol-fueled, you know, arguments slash fights. One thing I am very firm on is that I certainly refuse to kowtow to the really, to me, bizarre Peter Jackson elves don't get drunk thing. Like, no, I never I got know. that at all. I always thought that was stupid. Um well, I mean, the Hobbit, like Ellen even pointed out, I mean, the guy gets drunk. I know. It's like crucial to the plot of The Hobbit that you exactly. can get elves drunk. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've never, I've never gotten that. And it's, you know, it, it's become, fortunately, it's not quite so firmly rooted as some of the other associations with elves and hobbits and things like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I think, for instance, like the, the, the connection between hobbits and 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 meals is actually a little bit exaggerated in the popular, you know, associations with it. Um, again, I'm not saying it's not oh, there in the text, but it's a little exaggerated. Like I think. Bacon almost constantly throughout his trip. It's true. It's. I'm gonna. It's, <laughs> I'm not saying it isn't there. I'm just saying that the, it's. It's. Uh, oh, it's just, I. I think. I think it's a little bit exaggerated. Um, yeah. As if hobbits were like all about food like they're not yeah. all they're they're yeah. about other things in addition to food um but anyway whatever the point is it's not like the the whole elves don't get drunk thing hasn't taken quite as deep root as the seven meals a day thing for hobbits has taken root uh in the kind of general uh you know tolkien consuming world so i think we're, we it won't be too hard to fight back against the elves don't get drunk thing i can also see maria's maria's suggestion of mead as being the alcoholic drink that they drink um, quicker to make. Did they have alcohol why. on? Did they have alcohol on Valinor, by the way? Um, they could have brought with them, like the bees and. The, you know, <laughs> brought, I'm just imagining them hauling casks of wine across the Helcaraxa. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, no, that, that, sure, absolutely. Um, uh, I meant the tradition of making. <laughs> the tradition like, of making. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or like yeah, beehives. Right. Yeah, exactly. Get all the Olmo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. No, I. I um, uh, yeah, beer yeah. and meat. That's what Ellen is pointing out. That she's right. You know, climate wise, you'd need to have something that. So beer, mead. Berry wine, but not grape wine. Yes, grape it wine have can to be, be in the forefront. It could certainly be in the background, yeah. in the sense of yeah, yeah, what, it, yeah. what exactly it is. But <laughs> right, somebody drunk would be fun. Right, um, let's get Caliborn drunk. You know, actually, I, I really kind of like. Again, it's one of those things, right? Like, um, uh, dwarves drink beer and elves drink wine, right? There's another thing, right? right that is kind That's of a, right. a kind of a cliche in. Uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, uh, having the elves be being drinking meat and beer um, would be uh, Out of the horns would be good. Of animals, you know, like the Vikings. Perfect. Let's <laughs> break as many stereotypes as we can. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, 
Absolutely. Oh, wait, Maria's reminding us that they showed the Valar making mead from honey at Tolkas and Ness's oh, wedding. Right. right. Okay. Really I forgot that's about what they were right. drinking okay. at, at uh, Tolkas and Ness's wedding. So good we're having Marie here. She Absolutely. Like, yes. I'm so glad I, uh, there's somebody who doesn't forget things as quickly as we do. Um, I know. Let's see. Oh, yeah, and Ellen, absolutely. They're goblets. I mean, you know, the Noldor would be all oh, about. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, absolutely. Pompous circumstance, even with regard to drinking stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Jeweled goblets and mm-hmm. blah. Mm-hmm. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're going to yeah. have an elf sommelier. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, okay, so let's... We so we have so so drinking. We've established there's drinking at uh, at the gathering, um, but what else do they do? You're a bunch of elves. What do you do for fun? Music. I, I think music and dancing is that's fine. Anything else? Do they do anything else? God, that's a really good point because these are not people that. I mean, these are people that see each other all the time, right? Well, and they live a very long time. They live a very so, long time, and they don't. Yeah, yeah I'm kind of like. Eh. You know, what are you going to chit-chat about? Well, I mean, they have stuff they can chit-chat about. But, but yeah, I, you know, Tony, I was thinking about that, too, and Ellen as well. Storytelling, right? Speeches and storytelling. Uh, yeah. Um, what about play acting? Do you think there'd be any kind of play acting, like, with stories? Do you think there'd be, like, ooh, that's interesting. amateur theatrics? Yeah. Um, sort of a la Victorian era? <laughs> amateur theatrics. Probably much better than in the uh, amateur theatrics in the Victorian era. Um <laughs> Theatrics. Mm. I'm thinking about Tolkien's. You know, the 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 thing that comes to mind, Trish, when you raise the issue of um, dramatics, uh, uh-huh. is uh, Tolkien's references to to fairy and drama, right? Um, oh, yeah. That like enchantment is what they do. So, but, but goodness, how could you convey this, like? Elvish storytelling, right? So I'm imagining story, like, in the storytelling part, right? There would be um, people, but it's not just like somebody sitting in a chair telling a story, right? It would be when one of the elf lords, right, to use the Fellowship of the Ring phrase that we've been talking about a bit lately, when an elf lord tells a story, you're there, right? I mean, you're enchanted into that story. Um, uh, so elf stories are hollow novels, to bring it back to Star yeah, Trek Voyager. Yeah. Um, no, seriously, like, you, 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 you find yourself there, right? So mm-hmm. it would be kind of hard to sort of show on screen people being kind of transformed into... Um, yeah, Marie was thinking the same thing, like how you're kind of enchanted into the live story. You're not just hearing a story when an elf is telling you a story, right? So I don't think they would need dramatic, you know, like to, to need drama, need stagecraft, right. right? Because the enchantment that elves could bring about is, I mean, Tolkien brought up that concept as like that it is the ultimate, like stagecraft is merely an attempt through clumsy human ways to, right. do, to, 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 to do that kind of thing, right? To bring you into the story, like you're seeing it unfold in front of your eyes, but you, the viewer, have to invest a great deal of yourself, right? A great deal of your own imagination uh, into, uh, you know, believing that what is happening on stage is exactly, you know, is happening in front of you. Elves don't need that. So I, so I don't think they would do it in that way. Um that's really interesting, you know, because 
we have the opportunity to show that when we introduce the humans, you know, yes. I mean, over time, the difference between that, you know, and kind of reflect that observation of Tolkien in this story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people can think about what that looks like. Nick wants it to be done <clears throat> through the smoke of the fires. Not sure I'm picturing what you're talking about, Nick. Not sure I can see it. Uh, but I, but it might be cool. I, just the fact that I can't... Uh, um, uh, well, that, that could be a precursor, isn't it? Frodo in the Hall of Fire, right? When he's listening to the story and he has the same experience of yeah. being carried away into the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. Well, um, not sure what kind of techniques we want. We might want, and of course, it's not like we're going to um, necessarily feature it heavily. I mean, it, presumably, it would be something that would be happening on the side. We would just sort of show that it's happening on the side, right? Um, right. Unless we take up Tony's suggestion, which is, you know, he says this could be our chance to really see what happened to Fingen, Mithros, uh, uh, you know, oh, and the yeah. and the eagles. <clears throat> um, That's a really good idea, actually. Yeah, uh, so rather than Fingen tells the story kind of, of the. Yeah, yeah, we're not really heavy on flashback type stuff, but this is a great way to kind of do it. This is, it's it, it's flashback, but it's woven into the story. I mean, it's part of right. the right. You know, right. Um, yeah. Oh, good. Uh, uh, Die Ruin uh, on the Twitch chat was just saying, you know. Um, was thinking of the mirror of Galadriel, right? Um, and you know, is is that is is there any kind of instrument like that, or, or similar kind of enchantment like that used to uh, to show or to tell stories? The thing about the mirror of Galadriel is that it is kind of a window into like things that could happen or things that will happen. It's not exactly she's not in she says she's not in control of it, right? So it's not exactly a, a sort of a storytelling device. But nevertheless, I do like that idea of. An instrument, like again, that seems like a, a fairly Noldoran thing, right? To uh, to be like, I have, you know, developed this thing. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the the somebody using water or a pool of water in some in some ways like this would be kind of w would be kind of cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't know, um, but. Um, now, Sharon asks a great question. Would they necessarily be engaged in a single large group or in smaller clusters? I would think in smaller clusters, right? There might be some special things. Like, so, for instance, if, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I could imagine there being a sort of a more, a, a big central thing, but probably not for storytelling. I mean, I would think that different, you know, People would tell different stories. Storytelling. Would there be competition? Would they compete? You know, I mean, like a formal competition, like they have. You know, like. I would think they would probably compete. Um. Yeah, Ellen, do we get the Diron and Maglor? You know, musical duel, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> who is going to be named the greatest minstrel ever? Right, like the, you know. Uh, yeah, like the Canterbury Tales. I like that, Tony. I like that. Yeah. Person. Yeah. Um, 
And the winner gets an all-expense-paid trip to the Grey Haven. <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> yeah, bragging rights for all time. Um, uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, storytelling, definitely. You would think that would also be... I mean, again, it's the Noldo, right? They would be making stuff. They would have made stuff. They would be displaying stuff, right? So, I mean... Surely, whether it's only in their own, clearly the costumes of the Noldor would have to be at their maximally elaborate that we ever show them in Middle Earth, um, would be like how the Noldor gussy themselves up for a uh, uh, for a, 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 a thing like this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, there should be lots of display and appreciation, right, by others of the things that have been made, right, the works of hands in various ways. Certainly the the visual distinction between how the Noldor dress and how the Sindar dress should never be more visible than at the Marathadarthad, I would think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, oh good, so back to the topic which I skipped over before of athletic competition. Um, what do you so there have been a couple votes for athletic competitions? That seems reasonable. Um, what would they do? What would, what would they do for athletic competitions? I mean, some of the classic things that are classics for a reason, right? Like running and jumping, you know, so like, you know, uh, sprints and, uh, well, archery would be one too, right? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, that's kind of like so stereotypically elf. Well, it is. No, that's a dwarf thing. That should be a dwarf thing. No, no it shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really shouldn't. No, I don't think so. Endurance dancing. <laughs> um, horseback, yeah. Horseback. Um, well, and there would be the various and sundry types of things you can do on horseback. You know, like jousting knights do. You know the. Yep. You know, a target from horseback and it, like kind of gymnastics, right? I mean, like yeah. general gymnastics. I think would be uh, would be I something. Mean, I, and this is I'm, I'm kind of serious about this, like a parkour kind of course. You know, like and we wouldn't of course call it parkour, but it would be you know like a or I can't even see elves doing something like a triathlon or. You know, Iron Man type stuff. Uh, on Twitch, Princess Ostrich asks the excellent question: Are there Elven martial arts? Ooh. And this is something I've thought about. Um, I mean, uh, uh, of course, being I being a martial artist. Being a martial well. artist, I really enjoy martial arts. Uh, I don't know what place there is for like you know, uh, unarmed combat and unarmed combat techniques. And if this is a thing that we would have, um, uh, yeah. With nunchucks. Yeah. See, Ellen, I agree. I don't see the Noldor, uh, doing, doing unarmed combat because they're too interested in, you know, f like 
making weapons, right? So they would they would they would use weapons and armor. Um, I can see the green elves being more martial art types. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I mean, though they're they're, all, they're the ones and... who are primarily associated with archery too. Um, That's true. Yeah. But hey, you know, you get caught without your boat, or you run out of arrows. You know, you got to do. I mean, it's not like Legolas who always has arrows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, if we came up with some sort of like Olympic-ish elf thing, I mean, where are we going to put that, and how is that going to be part of a story? I suppose it could be a background kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, any of the things that we're talking about at the Marathatter thought here, I don't know to what extent any of it appears on screen, right? Um, yeah. It's good to think about just because we might want to, you know, when we're coming to the plot of the Marathatarthad, we might want to be interacting with some of these things at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it might just be in the background. I mean, so like, for instance, if we had someone telling a story and then we showed Galadriel walking away from it, right? So she's there in the crowd and then Galadriel walks right. away and that's when she and right. Kelleborn have their conversation or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I can imagine it coming up like that or even just happening in the background. Like, you know, they're walking and in the background we're seeing, you know, like uh, people doing like, you know, gymnastics on horseback or whatever it is they're doing. Right. Um, to see that happening in the background. Um, uh, yeah. Um, this is a pretty big celebration. So, I mean, there, yeah, there would, it would need to be, you know, even just, even if it's just visual, you know, obviously a huge celebration, you know, lots of things going on. I mean, they're, they're also up against the mountains of shadow. There could be mountain type things going on. If you want to talk about climbing. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Um, somebody had suggested, and I didn't talk about it at the time, uh, fireworks. Why not? Ah, interesting. There could be fireworks or something like fireworks. Um, Absolutely. You know, thinking about this, because this is a feast where they have ambassadors coming from all the different elf factions and whatnot, right? Back to the music again. You know, are we going to have music motifs for the different elf factions? And this would be a place where that music would play out. Right. Right. Yeah. Now we certainly would have opportunities for that See kind how of I thing. Did that? Yeah. The music? yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Except I'm going to carry on digressing. So fireworks. Um, I, I agree. Maria, I was thinking along the same lines. We do need to be like, does this mean they have gunpowder? No, it doesn't mean they have gunpowder. I'm not convinced there's any gunpowder at all involved in Gandalf's fireworks. Um, by the way, right? I mean, what evidence is there that Gandalf uses gunpowder? Um, I mean, his magic is primarily interested in smoke and lights. That's what fireworks are, right? Um, smoke, lights, and noises. I don't know that there is any physical explosion involved in Gandalf's fireworks. Um, uh, I don't know what's in Gandalf's fireworks, but again, I am not necessarily assuming that it's gunpowder. Um, Are we sure we don't want to make fireworks specifically a Gandalf thing? Like it's not been seen in Middle Earth until he shows up? I mean, otherwise, where do they get it from? It seems like there's need to be a backstory about where the fireworks come from. This would be the first time we would have seen them. Unless we have them in Valinor before, you know. It might be... 
Well, you could do it one of two ways, right? We could choose either to have the Noldor doing fireworks here at the Marathadrthad and then have them not seen again until Gandalf revives them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that when we see Gandalf setting off fireworks in the Shire, um, we are seeing, you know, this sort of comparatively modern and certainly comparatively modest culture Mm -hmm. being brought back into touch with some of the magic of the ancient world, right? That's that's one way in which we could Mm -hmm. play it. Or we could associate them specifically with um, with Gandalf, right? Have Gandalf be the one who, like, it is his particular character which leads, like, the which leads him to um, take this kind of uh, magic with light and fire uh, and smoke and turn it into this form of party entertainment which no one before him had ever thought of doing. Like, that seems, it seems also like a legitimate idea, way frankly. to do it. Yeah, and I mean, it, this is a terrible thing for me to say, but I would love to reach back into an earlier you know, season and actually show him kind of messing around with it because we we do have him in the story in Valinor, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. kind of like it would be kind of cute if it was like you come across him and he's like doing this thing that just keeps bombing. You know, he can't quite get it to work. You know, <laughs> I've got this good idea, but I can't get it to work, kind of thing. And then you just don't even refer to it anymore. And then you know, then Gandalf shows up. But I, I my personal preference, although I will certainly go with the flow here, would be to have it be a Gandalf thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing is, how do we explain? them sh- coming up with fireworks all of a sudden where it's never really been even a thing before who hobbits or noldor noldor yeah well i mean you know but they're very inventive folk right so you know um <laughs> i like it being a gandalf thing personally but <sighs> what i like about that most i think is the way in which like the kind of spirit not only spirit of fun in general but sort of the the spirit of community fun um it would be, I think it would be cool to associate that particular with Gandalf and the kind of, there's the, the, yeah. the humility of it, right? The humility of I'm going to take my gifts, especially Ellen, I agree with you, if he's using the ring of fire, right? If he's using the, the ring of power uh, in order to do fireworks displays for Hobbit children, like that's mm-hmm. even, that's like twice as cool. It's like, wow, this ring Kyrdan gave me, look what I can do with it. <laughs> exactly, this is awesome. <laughs> fireworks displays for everybody now. That was That is sweet. I got an awesome ring of fireworks. Uh, but it yeah. would be cool if, in, if at the at the Marath Adderfed, if there was some kind of light something. You know, do they have candles? I don't know if they have candles. Do they light faggots of wood, you know, and have them as torches and do something like a procession or, you know what I mean? Do something that would be really wonderful with light. Um... Right, right. Or maybe they have yeah. some kind of fancy lantern system that they brought in. You know, I would, you know, used. wouldn't there be, if you were, if you could do the whole yeah, fairy and drama thing, right? If you could enchant your audience so as to make them see and hear things that are not physically present in front of them, wouldn't you also take advantage of this as, as a purely visual artist? Right. Instead of merely painting on a canvas with paint, wouldn't you create like incredible, like, you know, intricate moving, you know, paintings and images and things like wouldn't that Mm be one of the arts that you would do? Um, uh, And whether whether there was actually I mean, whether this was 
a, a sort of like display or enchantment of actual light or whether it was like something merely projected into the minds of your viewers, you know, through Elvish enchantment. Um, I would kind of think that this would be the, that that would be a kind of thing, right? That they would do um, that visual art to them would mean much more. They would have more resources for art than we do. Again, like just as just as stage drama is sort of a, a comparatively pitiful human imitation of the kind of things mm -hmm. that the Noldor, you know, that that elves can accomplish in storytelling. I would think that painting and sculpture would similarly be, you know, uh, limited human uh, uh, approximations of what elves are capable of doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And whether the art is purely holographic or whether there is a physical element as well, maybe there are actual things that are created or that have some function. Maybe there's, maybe there is an actual visible sort of light display that's also connected with it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I'm not saying that there wouldn't be physical sculptures and things also made. Ellen, I agree. There would, there's certainly a place for that. I'm just saying, I, I can't imagine given the way that Tolkien describes Elvish enchantment, it's hard for me to imagine that Elvish art would be limited to that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, and again, yeah. we would see it, you know, like when the men come, we see that art stepping back into the art as we know it, you know, the two dimensional, the, or the, you know what I mean? The flat, not moving kind of stuff where the elves would never have that. They wouldn't even have that restriction. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I would think. I want to go to this party. This party. Sounds I know, this is starting to sound like a better and better party, isn't it? Yeah, um, and also, someone, uh, uh, Beldernick in uh, the Twitch chat ages ago had suggested food. Obviously, right? Like some of oh, the yeah. Neldor, some some of the Noldor also are going to uh, specialize in uh, in food, right? Um, yeah. So certainly the kind of uh the 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 cookery involved uh at the Marathadrathad should be exceptionally elaborate right um definitely very elaborate food is there such a thing as fat elves i would assume not but well one of the things to keep in mind is that I mean, there aren't so many fat people in pre-industrial society. I that's mean, true. like, oh, that's it, true. yeah, that's it, true. It's, yeah. I mean, it doesn't again, really come up as an issue, does it? Yeah. Not, not so often. Not so yeah. often. Again, not, not, not yeah. never, right? But uh, not so often. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess we would have like. Burly, you know, there's like burly. You could have a burly elf, I suppose, like a Tolkas kind of elf, right? Yeah. I mean, it's they're not all lithe and thin and yeah, you know, prancy but fierce type. Elf. Good. Yeah, uh, Maria's reminding us of Salgant, Lord of Gondolin, who's called out as being overweight. Um, I certainly would not say that it would be impossible for like that elves are immune to obesity any more than they're immune to drunkenness. Like it's it's. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I would certainly think it possible. Um, 
probably not usual, I would imagine. No, no, I would think not usual or common. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I agree, Ellen says that she thinks the Lost Tales version of Salgunt is too silly and needs to be toned down. Well, yes, and of course, remember, like, fat is funny in Tolkien 95% <laughs> of the time, right? I mean, seriously, how many... Ob- how, how often is obesity not comic relief in Tolkien? Like, very rarely. Very rarely. Um, that's not to say that um, that fat people in Tolkien are always made a mockery of, right? Um, like, for instance, Forlong the Fat um, is right. not mocked for being fat, exactly. But the fact that he is fat is, uh, I mean, like, old Forlong the Fat, says Burgill, and it's clearly an affectionate... Like, the, the tone of that seems clearly affectionately teasing, right? Um, so, like, fun is being made with him, even, you know, not to his face, um, because he's fat. Um, he's not ridiculed. He's not being ridiculed for being fat, right? He's not being made a mockery of, and yet it's it's a fun... It's, it's funny. Like, it's still always funny. Um... Well, you know, like in Latin society, I'm specifically thinking Spanish, but I would imagine this is probably true in Italian, too. You know, they flaco and gordo, you know, flaco means skinny and gordo means fat. I mean, mm-hmm. they're nicknames. Right. And they're not meant to be pejorative at all. They're just, you know, it's like it's just a nickname for a buddy of yours and who happens to be portly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. Well, I was just wondering. I mean, no, you know, it's a good question. It, 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 do we show that, you know, in terms of our extras and whatnot, you know, it wouldn't be a big issue. It's just, you know, it'd be interesting to see some diversity of size, maybe, in our groups. There should definitely be some. I, I, I agree. Um, and some short elves, now that we're talking about diversity. It could be shorter and taller ones, right? They're not all... No, they're not all the same height, certainly. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I I do agree, Marie. We certainly don't want to uh, faithfully recreate no, no, Tolkien's no. penchant for making fat jokes no. every time <laughs> obesity comes up. Uh, well, I, I or guess what I'm every time. about here is, and I mean, we'll definitely do it with the humans. I was just wondering if we do it with the elves. You know, I mean, we have we have actually a commitment to diversity in many forms. You know, we do color and gender and whatnot. I just don't know with the elves. I, I you know how far do we go with this standard? perception of, you know, the higher a high elf, the higher an elf is, the taller and skinnier the elf is. <laughs> and the right. more pointed their ears, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, hmm. again, a digression, but it's something for us to maybe just think about, about how, what's our, you know, how are we going to yeah. do that? I mean, no, I, that's a great question. I think it would be fun to do a little bit of a different take on elves than what we've been handed down over, you know, by tradition. Well, especially since so much of that is not textual, right? I mean, so much of that is associations that have been made. I was just talking about this the other day uh, in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, 
I think it was there where people, you know, like the the fact that people so off, like you'll hear people speak as if they assume all elves must be vegetarians. Like, oh, elves are, elves are right. like at one with nature, so they would never kill living creatures. Yeah, they do all the time. They hunt like for fun. That's like they do that. Um, we know for a fact they are not vegetarians, right? So, but again, people kind of will get this idea and sort of run with it, uh, and and also as you say, kind of iron over any possibilities of 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 cultural or even personal differences, right? Mm-hmm. Among mm-hmm. among elves, uh, and that is certainly something that we need to uh, we need to be wary of um uh, just submitting to uh to casually you know to the kind of to mere stereotypes of elves which often sometimes are contradicted by the text and and even when they're not are often not there you know something that we're merely projecting onto the text right 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 yeah um yeah so ellen i was thinking about that too uh, let's take that fat elves discussion one step further. Cause I think this is, this is exactly the good question. So Ellen was saying, you know, basically asking are overweight elves consistent with the concept of elves being immune to disease and having this kind of spiritual control over their body. Right. I mean, the relationship between elves and their bodies is just not the same as humans. Um, so you're unlikely to find, elves just like getting a little stout around the middle, right? Because they haven't been watching their diets lately. I, I, I agree. I'm not sure elves would necessarily work that way physiologically. Um, I but think more than the way they're born as opposed to being a, a reflection of body perhaps. habits. I mean, where did we say that spiritual control over bodily urges necessarily means being skinny? Especially yeah. if like... Because there's spiritual control and then there's spiritual control, right? Someone who has spiritual control would uh, arguably not, like, slay their kin, for instance, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. If they fall into that particular kind of spiritual weakness, wouldn't they also fall into other forms of spiritual weakness? That's a good point, Um, yeah. That is actually a good point. That's a very interesting so, although I certainly don't want to like necessarily have us be equating body fat with well, that's uh, it. I mean, know, erosion of morals or something like that. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but but yeah, no. I mean, it's it's. Uh, um, I've always thought of Finway as being kind of a burly elf, you know, like like you know, solid man. I mean, it could be a line thing, you know, like the line of so and so tends to be more meaty than the line of this other, you know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily, I don't think it has to necessarily even be personal. It's just that some tend to be heavier than others. And it's not a, it's not a, you know, he drank too much beer and now has a beer gut. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, I'm just talking about diversity in body, in 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 morphology. Right, in morphology. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, there certainly needs to be diverse. And again, there also, you get this sort of like, stereotype of elvish build, right? That all elves are, you know, wispy and slight and, uh, uh, and yeah, there, no, there, there can be, there certainly should be elves who are built like NFL linebackers. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Like, uh, who was just saying, Tony said, Bella, he's always thought of Bella and Mablung as being bigger and burlier. And Marie says it really well. The idea is to have a variety of body types without it being that the handful of fat elves are weak or objects of mockery. It's just yes. a thing. It's just, 
Yes. It's just, that's just the reality. There's some that are thinny, thinny. <laughs> some that are fat. <laughs> right. There you go. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now, Tony was asking, what food is served at the Marathad or Thad? Well, meat. Um, they can have meat. They can have pastries and Tony, uh, uh, not Tony, Nick, I love the suggestion that Carinthier's real gift is he's the pastry chef, right? That's uh, <laughs> talk about, uh, well, I, I was going to say uh, that would really be, that, that would really be, uh, you know, running con, uh, contrary to type for Carinthier, <laughs> except that I withdraw that suggestion because I've known too many pastry chefs. It's not actually that contrary oh, to really? type. So yeah, yeah, no, you know, you no. It's like a county fair, right? And have like a bake-off. Yeah, no, the, the majority of pastry chefs I've known have been really cranky, actually. So, oh, really? you know, I, don't, I actually think... <laughs> exactly. Uh, but anyway, um, um, uh, you know, fruits, pastry, sure. Are they... Are they Agricultural. I mean, they have to get flour to make pastries, right? Yeah. They grinding flour, and I mean, I, I they have to. We've already t- kind of talked about that, haven't we? That there's going to be some kind of farming going on. Yeah, yeah, I have to. Um, um, lots of fruits. Yeah, lots of fruits and vegetables and pies and and uh, yeah, yeah. Is it sit down or is it more buffet style? In other words, are we going to have serving people or are we going to have it just there's just tables of food and people are. Up I think want. tables of food. I don't think we're gonna we're gonna have like yeah no yeah and and I don't think we're gonna have like show a bunch of Noldor sitting around and being like would table seventeen now come to the buffet table like I don't think we're gonna have that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah um but yeah they 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 would certainly grow grain um and I think they've been. The, Remember, one of the beauties of season four is that we make an indefinite amount of time pass between almost every episode. Like, it's, I don't think we ever really need to be clear, but it can easily be more than one year. I mean, that by season, by episode five, easily, right? And that's where we're doing the Marathatterthad. So now, it's, been, it's been a while. When I was just, like, refreshing my memory, it was supposed to be in uh, celebration of the 20th year since the appearance of the sun. Are we still going by that, or are we kind of stretching our timeline and not really, not necessarily... I think we just don't specify We just don't mess it, yeah. Yeah, we don't even need to go there. How long does this feast last? Given we're talking about elves who are immortal, how long does this feast last? Is it... Oh, weeks. Days, months, years? It's gotta be. It's gotta be for weeks, right? Oh, yeah, it's uh, got to be for a long time. Yeah, I no, I would think, right? They're, they're, yeah, absolutely. They're in no rush. Besides, what, what do they have to like? Go back to the office on Monday morning, like exactly. that, you exactly. know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, we said before, is their time, their uh, perception of time is way different from ours, so it could go on for quite a while. I mean, very much like, I would imagine what they're probably trying to do is do something similar to what they experienced in Valinor on right. these days. Right. Know? Right. So there should be some similarities, by the way. Of you know that an eagle-eyed viewer would see. Oh yeah, that they got that from Valinor. Right, know. right. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely. I'm thinking like a month. A month would be about how long the Marathatathod would go. And now I don't know exactly how we convey that, um, or if we need to bother conveying Probably. that. Um, but uh, um, there but, might be yeah. ways. You know, the writing team might find or want to have there be ways to sh- you know to, to refer to time passing. It, probably in conversations with people mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, encounters. 
showing the face of the moon. Yes, Alan, that's true. That's, right. That's another good way to do it. Yeah, that's true. Actually, you could, you could incorporate that in pretty easily, too. I would think kind of, the, the yeah, primary... Celebration the primary thing that would move it along, right? I mean, again, they don't have to get back to work on Monday, but seasonal change would be like, I mean, mm-hmm. especially if it's a harvest, if it happens at harvest time, right? Um, then like winter is starting to set in. We should probably head home is, is kind of yeah. would be the natural thing. I was actually thing. thinking that too. I was thinking more like a season, you know, like a quarter, like right. Lunasa to, to Samhain kind of thing, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, or they just go until they run out of food and booze. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they have to eat their way through their massive stores. Uh, yeah, yeah. In which but, case, you know, there's nothing left for the winter, so oh well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, priorities. Um, okay, that makes sense. Well, see, we've uh, we've gone well beyond music commissions and uh, to conceiving the Marathauter Thad. I'm going to add this now. I, we would talked about hunting. I mean, I could definitely see like there being a big hunt. You know, like a fox, oh, yeah. like fox hunting. You oh, know, yeah. They all get together and stuff. Sure. So I can see that being a big thing. In fact, I could even see that being like, okay, we've eaten all of this stuff from our host. We now need to do a hunt. <laughs> Let's go hunt. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm, sort of, I'm now imagining an elvish celebration, which begins with the planting of the seeds in the spring and ends yeah. when the, when that grain is harvested and, totally and ground. Right? I mean, totally we eat the bread that we've, you know, from the seed yeah. that we planted at the beginning of the party, yeah. And, you yeah. know, I could totally see that, given the nature of this celebration, you know, to be, for it to be that. And that yeah. would totally be in keeping with these guys, because they don't have really, seasons to seasons just are, like, you know, nothing. Right. Blink of an eye. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. It's, um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, this all, this all makes, makes sense. Um, Okay, oh, yeah, no problem. No problem. Okay, we're we're going. We're moving on. I was just about to do that. All right. Mithrim. Okay, so uh, Harangil, he is our cartographer, our film film cartographer. He's be- begun work on a map showing the two camps across the lake from one another at Mithrim. Um it has been suggested that Fingolfin will stay at that site, eventually turning it into his fortress, so we would have the opportunity of showing the gradual transformation of the initial tent city into a fortress as time passes. So how large, how is this large camp being supplied with food and lumber, etc.? Um, and also any requests for other areas that need maps. All right, so let's focus on the, uh, the, 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 in- the growing city by the shores of Lake Mithrim. I love this idea, as of course a city by the lake makes a lot of sense. Um, it has to be fortress-like because everything up in the north is going to be, and you know, with you know Fingolfin and uh, you know all of those, um, they're all going to be very oriented on the the war with Morgoth, so it's not like he would just make an open, undefended city there. But at the same time, Mithrim is in the middle, right? I mean, he, he it's not going to be like front line of fortifications. It's an inner fortification. So I would think it would have walls, clearly, but I wouldn't think it would be first and foremost a massive fortification, really. Um, uh, I think that... Um, uh, I think that they would they would certainly um, it seems to me therefore that the opportunity 
would be for the city by Lake Mithrim would be the one, like the one place of like peace. And again, there would be vigilance there, but it wouldn't be primarily oriented on vigilance and vigilance and defense. It would be the one sort of comparatively open and beautiful city. Um, uh, yeah. No, exactly, Marie. There are ways through the mountains, but that's what they would be focused on defending, right? So all of their defenses would be set up at the mountain passes. Again, they're not going to just have an open, totally undefended city anywhere, but I would think that it would be the least well, the least fortified of any of the cities in the north. Um, and... Also... This is the only city I can think of in Beleriand. We get very few lakeside cities in Beleriand. That's not a common feature. And the city here by Mithrim is therefore an interesting kind of opportunity. Um... Yeah, Nick says maybe even some structures that, that have been built outside the walls as the city expands. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, like none of the major, you think of the, the major centers, right? The major places where action happens, the places we're going to visit during the season, right? Um, you've got Nevrast on the coast, which is the closest thing, and of course the havens, obviously. Um, but again, almost everything else is on hills or in forests, right? We don't get really, like, city next to a large lake. So Mithrim is a really interesting opportunity, I think, to show. So what I would suggest to Harangil, as far as thinking about maps and how the city develops, I think it would be really fun if the city developed... We saw the city developing... Um, it, sort of with the lake, right? Like, not just a city that happens to be near the lake. I'm not thinking necessarily we go full lake town with the city, um, but maybe even something like that, perhaps. Uh, you know, maybe there's like an island that there's a bridge to. Maybe they have parts of it built out over the water. Um, but I would think that like the the opportunity to show them interacting um, uh, with the lake. Uh, as far as the actual structure of the city is concerned, would be kind of would be kind of fun. Would be kind of interesting. Um, I absolutely agree, uh, certainly, uh, Ellen, that they have to be able to hunt and farm and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, I yes, uh, sure, but I think we can have plenty of open land around there um, to sort of show that I call that agriculture is able to happen and, and that kind of thing. I, that doesn't seem to me to be super challenging there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that climate wise, climate wise, I think we're still South of Tundra. I don't think we have to be thinking about Tundra here. Um, remember that... You know, 
Yeah, I um, I'm not sure we have to go that far. It's northern, but I don't think that we have to necessarily make the terrain like tundra there. Um, yeah. Um, uh, see, I don't know. I don't think that we're restricted in that way necessarily. I mean, we know the Helcaraxa goes over there, but it, 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 you know, it's not right next to it um, necessarily. And we know that Utumna was further north, um, you know, before. So it's not in the northern extreme. Um, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. The Helcaraxa is, 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 is north. Of Mithrim. I don't think we have to imagine it being certainly not north beyond the tree line at all. Um, I don't see any reason we can't have forests in Hithlam. That seems to me perfectly acceptable. Um, I mean, we're north, but we're not that far. I mean, the Angband isn't polar. Um, I really don't think that we have to we have to go there. Did we talk about Ruth? Ruth brought up a little while ago, and and. It- it, it kind of scrolled by me. The fact that we are still on a flat Earth, you know, it's not a sphere yet. Yes. And I, I don't know that we would necessarily first. So two things about that for me. One is that to me that just opens it up in terms of who knows what the weather's like. Sure, there True. could be seasons. I mean, you know, it doesn't. True. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, I don't think the physics that we know in our world now would necessarily apply. Yes. Um, and that's the other thing I was going to say is I think we need – but the other thing I – oh, no, I know the other thing I was going to say is we don't, we don't want to get too far. Like, you know, the viewers would be like, I don't understand, you know, why this – or you know what I mean? It's, but I just think we need to kind of unhinge ourselves a little bit or unhook ourselves a little bit from, like, physics as we know it or, or meteorology as we know it ourselves. And from, from, <clears throat> from round, round earth yes. climate physics. Uh, uh, physics. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. That yeah. makes sense. Um, uh, and, you know, yeah, you're right, Marie. We wouldn't have a tropical location right next to a polar one. Right. But right. there certainly could be seasons. I mean, it could be a whole entire, like, like winter, polar could be more of a season, right? Over the entire, over all of Middle Earth at the same time. And then it's right now i mean <laughs> we i mean there are clear differences i mean it is part of the story that the north is oh, colder yeah, than the, than the south yeah. like that's that's a, we, that's fine correct, we can do that yeah. but again i don't think we need to be um, so, Ellen, I know you're thinking about Ardgallen in particular. I do not think that we need to... Yes, Ardgallen is open, grassland, sure, but I don't think that that means we have to associate it with, um, uh, you know, with tundra above the northern tree line. Like, I don't think we have to go there. We can just um, uh, just make it grassland. <laughs> That's all we need to do is make it a grassland. Um, make it a... Make it a... Make it a... You know, a, 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 a northern prairie, you know. Um... um well, see, but Ellen, you know, the question is, so Ellen, Ellen, you ask, why are trees unable to grow there? I don't know. The question is not, why are they unable to grow there? The question is, why don't they grow there? And I don't know the answer to that question, but why should anybody need to know the answer to that question? Answer, because Yovana didn't plant them there. You know, I don't know. Uh, that's another reason why I think we can't compare it to what we know today. You know, exactly. It's, it's uh, exactly, Ellen, in, in our world, it's step for a reason. But this is not our world. It's not a round earth, yeah. right? And so, therefore, there might be reasons, but those reasons don't have to be the same reasons as in our world. That's exactly what Trish is saying, and I think that that makes you know, a lot funny. of sense. 
I have to laugh with Tolkien. You totally get what interests him, and you totally get what doesn't interest yes. him in his writing. Yes. You know, like he doesn't do a lot of sketching of this kind of stuff. He doesn't really. Like, he doesn't think about this stuff. You know, what would the effects of a flat earth... He just doesn't think about that. Just like with battles and stuff, he doesn't really get into all the military logistical stuff. You know what I mean? It's like... Right. It's so funny, because it's yes. like, yeah, he, or, he, was, or, he wasn't really into this. Or the economic <laughs> systems, right? Or also, another thing exactly. that he does not exactly. get into uh, exactly. very much. It's not that trade never happens or anything like that. Um, off-camera, you know? But yeah, no, exactly. You know, just, exactly. Like, yeah, of course they would need to have that, but that's not part of my story same thing with like seasons and things like that it's not that I mean, he had to actually go back didn't he like with the phases of the moon that was like a retrofit wasn't it that he did at some point where he went had yeah. to go back and like yeah, yeah. match it up well so with funny. with the hobbit certainly he didn't yeah, with the he hobbit, wanted yeah. to he needed to yeah. do some retrofitting yeah <laughs> yeah um uh yeah anyway um but no so the the and you know this is a big can of worms that I'm not going to open right now. The whole question about the connection between Middle Earth and our world. Um, I we can see in Morgoth's ring the trouble that that ended up taking Tolkien into, uh, mm-hmm. and honestly, I think it's a big mistake. Like I would, I would have, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I am not, um, I do not think we need to be tied to that. Um, I think that. Tolkien himself clearly had some major issues with that as far as when it actually came to working it out. And I think the the stuff that we get in the beginning of the misconceived section in Morgoth's Ring shows him really struggling with some of this stuff in what I think are pretty destructive ways. Um, yeah. uh, I really hate his astronomical reconsiderations. It makes sense, but only if you grant the one initial, only if you cling stubbornly to the idea that this was our world. Um, and I think if you if you're willing to let that go, Tolkien the world that Tolkien himself made is makes much more sense than when he yeah. tried to make it fit exactly. Force, the more he thought about it, it. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I I think that was I I I mean I I would I would strongly disagree with Tolkien on that. I would say, dude, your stories are better. Leave it. Just leave it. Um, uh, it's okay yeah, if it's a, if it's a different so. it's world. Much better at like as considered a subcreated world like Narnia, or you know, I could think of a lot of other stories. I mean, the tradition in fairy stories is you don't make it in, on Earth, you know. Right, exactly. And Tolkien did that, and he did that for a reason, and it's interesting uh, to sort of see how that grew. But again, I don't think... That does not seem to me a law that we need to conform with. Again, Tolkien's world yeah. doesn't conform to that law in general. When yeah. he tried to make it conform better and better, he got into more and more trouble. Uh, so, you know, I, there are things that we need to do in order to make sure that things make sense. Marie, exactly as you said... If we have, you know, a polar region and then a tropical region right next door to each other, that's just going to be weird and dissonant and bizarre. And that's a thing that would demand an explanation, right? We we don't want to include things that demand explanations that make our readers say, what on earth is going on? This is just like a, a random, arbitrary thing. We don't want to make it feel random and arbitrary, but that doesn't mean we have to tie ourselves exactly um, to all other kinds of uh, kinds of things. Um uh, so, uh, William wants to know if there are any islands in the lake. I think there could be islands. Of course, you know, William, I was thinking about islands, and the first thing I was thinking of when I was thinking about islands uh, was Quivienin, right? And uh, to, to what extent might we want to... Rec- that would be kind of poignant, actually, to recall Quivienin 
at Mithrim, um, mostly especially because, of course, Mithrim was the site of conflict, right, or at least of near conflict, right? There was the, the place of tension uh, between the two branches of the Noldor there. Um, recalling Quivienen might be kind of interesting, actually. Um, uh, I don't know if we wanted to do that explicitly, but um, but I think that that's kind of... Uh, that that's that would be kind of interesting uh, to have Quivienne uh, and to, to be recalling Quivienne and and because that 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 kind of recollection. So for that reason alone, I would I would think there should be islands. How much we want to make of that, you know, we can sort of see. But um, but I would kind of want there to be islands. Um, now, uh, Ellen had asked an, a great question, which is what happens to the Feanorian camp? So the Feanorians move away, right? Fingolfin makes uh, his camp into a city. Um, and the Feanorians move away. What happens to the Feanorian camps? I would think it gets occupied, right? It becomes a, it becomes a, it doesn't have to become a second city. So it would seem like one of two things would happen, right? Either it would be a site that would become occupied and would become like a sister city to Fingolfin City, or it would be desolate, right? Would, would people have enough ill will for the Feanorians that they would be like, this is where the Fanorian settled. We shall never again, like there will be tumbleweeds rolling around there for all time. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, leave that, they, like, they, you know, that, that, that ground is cursed as far as, uh, as far as we're concerned. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think Fingolfin would let that happen. Um, I agree. He at least wants to work together enough that I don't think he is going to encourage his people to, um, you know, sort of like maintain a constant memorial to how horrible the Feanorians are. I think that would be counterproductive uh, completely. Nick, I agree there would be multiple smaller towns on the lake shores, um, and it could become one of them, or it could be one of the one of the biggest ones. Um, uh, yeah, so... So yeah, I, I would just think that that it, that it would grow into a into a companion town or or city. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And as for the again the supplies with food and lumber and stuff, I would think that that would be there would be certainly plenty around uh, around there to um, uh, uh, for them to for them to live. I don't think there's any problem. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Ellen, I have no object to there being a cold climate. Not, not at all. Not at all. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be Arctic. It doesn't have to be polar. That's all. I mean, you know, Canada's cold, but it's not all polar. Um, you know, like that's, that's all I'm saying. And, and, and there's plenty of, you know, there's forests and there's also grassland, right? Uh, so that's that's all. I mean, it, it can be like I, 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 no problems with their having harsh winters and the climate being significantly colder. Um uh, so yeah, that's all, that's all, that's all totally fine. Um, exactly, Tony, it doesn't need to be Winterfell. No, it does not need to be Winterfell. Um, okay, cool. Um, any other areas that need maps? Yes. I want a map of Himring. Um, I want a map of Mytheros' fortress. Uh, or network of fortresses. I mean, the March of Mythros, right? How did the defenses work at the March of Mythros? 
I would like to know. See, there are some things that are relatively simple, like the passes in the mountains into Hithlam, right? There are several passes. You need fortresses to defend the passes. I don't feel like I need a map for those, right? But the March of Mithros, what does Mithros do? How do they, how does Mithros create fortifications in order to inhibit the armies of Morgoth coming through that much broader area, right? I'd be very interested to see that. Um, hmm. A map of the Nargothrond area, Ellen, I agree that would be useful uh, because it would help in conceiving. One of the things we're going to need to show a lot, right, is... So remember that the kind of the balance we were trying to maintain with Nargothrond, where it was hidden but not secret, <clears throat> right? Unlike Gondolin, which, like, nobody even knows where on the continent G Gondolin is, it's known, the region that Finrod lives in, and he wants it to be part of the part of the war, right? He's not retreating from the war. He's not isolating himself from everybody else. But part of the strength of Nargothrond is that its entrance is secret. People don't know exactly how to get to it. So how do we do that? How do you have, what is the area like that, you know, around like that? How do they contrive to keep the entrance a secret? Because um, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to show people going and coming, and we can't have a highway, right? Um, but what does it look like when there's not a highway? Are there geographical features that make it sort of easier to hide? Not only the place. Having the hidden gates to the city is not itself very difficult. Um, I'm just thinking of, like, the approaches to the city. How do you make people able to come and go, as people clearly do come and go, uh, with some frequency from Nargothrond without betraying the location, right? So that's what I would want to be, to sort of see uh, how that could be contrived. And, and a map, I think, might be really helpful um, for us as we're thinking about how people go and come uh, from Nargothrond without, again, like tramping a path straight up to the front door that anybody could follow. Um, uh, the Minas Tirith era, uh, area, Ellen, yeah, one of the things that I would like to understand better is that that island, that fortress that Finrod builds up there, What's the point of it? Is it just guarding the river crossing? I want to make sure... I think a map might help us to show... what. Because, like, to be honest, um, on the map, right, on the Beleriand map, Minas Tirith, it's not obvious the tactical importance of Minas Tirith from the map. Right? I mean, like, it's kind of located there in the gap. But the gap is big enough that when you look at the map, you're like, well, go around it. Right? How hard is that? <laughs> right? I mean, okay, so there's a fortress there. And, you know, like, if you're marching an army and there's an army in the fortress, you can't just walk past it and wave as you go by because then they'll come out and attack you from behind. Right? So I'm not saying that, that you know, that, that, but I would want it to be more than that. Right? Just to sort of show how, um, show how that why that why he chose that spot why that spot is an important spot and the significance of that and william i think that you're right um that the um uh it might be useful 
to start thinking about a map of uh, of 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 Tulsirian and a map of Minas Tirith itself, because uh, we're going to want one when we when it's time to rescue Baron. We don't absolutely need one. I would put that as a lower priority of some other things, uh, because it's not really until we need to rescue Baron that we're going to need to know more about how that's how it's structured, right? Um, but it would be interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, so those would be, I think, my top requests for maps. Um, we won't need this until next season, but just to kind of throw this out there, um, uh, Nan Elmoth, like Aeol's Nan Elmoth, um, it doesn't necessarily have to have funky geography, but I think that it might... I don't know, I want to I want to kind of picture it more. Um, anyway, okay. Those are my suggestions about maps. Alright, let's keep going. So, the sun! So, we celebrated the rising of the sun at the end of last season, and we've had the sun and moon for a whole season, and, but we haven't said too much about that. I think this is a great question to raise. Um, what effect will it have on Beleriand? Um, okay, uh... All right, hang on, I'll keep going. They decided that the sleep of Yavanna was mostly lifted at the awakening of the elves, so life cycles have continued. Um, but now we have a sun, so what changes? Uh, how do we show the world blossoming? Uh, blossoms, chiefly. Uh, the primary thing that I think... Uh, <laughs> blossoms, yeah, flowers would be my number one thing. Um the difference between season three and season four doesn't have to be like the, you know, the, like Dorothy landing in Oz necessarily, right? Like it doesn't have to be that exaggerated, the shift from black and white to ridiculous color uh, in the land of the Munchkins. But um, I think it, um, that should be one of the primary things. Color should be one of the primary things, right? That, the thing about the world by starlight, it wasn't dark. We can't show it dark or red. You know, you won't be seeing anything over the course of the whole, uh, the whole film. Uh, but there will have been lots of large, you know, very muted colors. Right. But, but, um, um, uh, certainly more flowers, um, more, more vibrancy and diversity of life there. You know, going back to my thing about, you know, we can't use our own physics. I mean, how about rain? You know, have we had rain prior to the sun coming up? I mean, because, you know, in our world, the heat, heating of the air, you know, contributes to the cloud formations and blah, 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 blah. But I don't know that we need to adhere to that. And and is rain required for the things to grow or do they just grow? Like, is Yavanna's magic enough just for them to grow? I don't yeah. have a vote one way or the other. I'm just yeah. Oh, I didn't think of the rain question. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, after it goes round, for sure, we would have rain. I would think. But at this point, I don't know. I just, you know, just throwing it out there. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I would think the elves would love – if it does rain, it would not be the thing where, oh, we must find cover. You know, I would totally see the elves like being out in the rain. Oh, yeah. It would just be another form oh, yeah. of, you know. Yeah. I don't yes. know. I mean, it's kind of interesting to to ponder because again, we're not we're not chained to our own world's yes. you know, natural yes. laws here. I and mean, again, as soon as we start, it could be sufficient to grow yes. this thing. So. And especially as soon as we start thinking about this stuff, I mean, we get right back into the issue that we had with the sleep of Yavanna, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is that Tolkien's stories depict forests before there is sun, right? I right. mean, like that's. <laughs> It happens, right? Um, so, and, you know, the decision that we made was to ease up on the sleep of Yavanna thing, because that seems to me like an actual flat contradiction uh, in Tolkien's world. But it's like, okay, because the Silmarillion isn't really interested in that kind of element of storytelling. It's not how the right. Silmarillion works. But we need to be thinking about that a little bit more. Um I don't think, I don't think that we make a big deal of the rain. The more I think about it, I'm thinking, yeah, there definitely will have been precipitation before. I mean, there's snow up north, right? So yeah, obviously, exactly. You know, um, I, I think one of the things for me is just okay. So if we do have rain, let's not have every single scene be sunny, blue sky all the time. You know, there needs to be some variation. Yeah, I missed diversity today. Can you tell? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Variation in body size, variation in weather. You know, right. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I always bug me in movies where you only see, like, like the weather is static, you know, right. through the whole entire show, which is so not realistic right. for us. But, you know, I, all bets are off for this, so I don't even know. But, yeah, I think. And you make an excellent point, um, <clears throat> Trish, about the reaction of elves to rain. Um, that elves wouldn't necessarily just be taking shelter from the rain, right? Right. It's not to say that they never take shelter from the rain under any circumstances, but I agree with you. I wouldn't necessarily think that that would be uh, their number one. I'm, I'm sort of imagining, like, what would Noldor rain gear be like? <laughs> I think that Noldor would design fabrics that would, like, look even more awesome when they were wet. When they were wet. Right. Yeah. Would like, you I know, mean, sort of shed and like, would, or, right. Or, or yeah. and, and would also like dry more easily so that you right. don't, you know, you don't just walk around like a drowned rat right after you've right. been soaked. Um, uh, so yeah, they would have, yeah. Yeah. That all would, um, um, that all would, would it, 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 that just seems to me that's the kind of direction the Noldor would probably think, right? It would mm-hmm. be rain would be for those you know for for those Noldor who are who are whose whose artistry takes the form of you know textiles and and uh, uh, and things like that. They would I mean rain would be a delightful artistic challenge. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be Absolutely. something that you would have to just apply your ingenuity to uh, to avoiding. I mean, this is another difference too. I mean, maybe the Sindar Duke take cover. You know, and the Noldor don't, and the Green Elves don't. You know, I mean, it's just, it could be another difference between the the races or the factions. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of an interesting, again, this is, this would be something that would play out kind of in the background or just mm-hmm. part of the scenery kind of thing, but still, it's worth thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe the, maybe the Sindar apply themselves to making cloaks, like Ellen is recalling, of course, the, um, 
the cloaks in the Lord of the Rings, right? Which are made by Nandor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, That's right. Maybe they right. apply themselves to, like, cloaks which actually do a really great job of shedding water, like w- waterproof cloaks. Right. Whereas the Noldor are like, no, why waterproof when you can, like, exploit the water wear. in, like, really awesome ways, <laughs> artistically, right? Um, yeah. Like, new designs show up on their clothing when it gets wet, you know? I mean, that right. kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> it's like, I must put my cloak on. <laughs> right. Right. Um... Yeah, no, there's there are all kinds of things that they could do there. I think, um, but um, yeah, yeah. So no, I, I think I think we we can show differences there, but that would be fun anyway. Um, so yeah, no, I, rain. I don't think we have a we. I don't think we have a problem with rain. Um, now, with this climate change and also the world blossoming also brings up, and we did touch on it, but I just want to say it again. So we do have like a harvest season, right? So yeah. there are seasons. Yeah, we um, are going to do seasons. Yeah. So. Uh, I would imagine that there would be a climate change that would, you know, match the seasons. Again, they don't necessarily have to track with us, but something. Yes. Um, that would be interesting, actually. But I don't know how we could convey this in a way that wouldn't simply be confusing. If the seasons were in some way different mm-hmm. from ours. Um, one thing that should not happen. I mean, if we want to think about if we want to think about flat earth astronomy at all, the one thing that should not happen is change of the length of day and night. Right. So whatever might happen with, there could be other reasons for, uh, you know, temperature changes, you know, for, for seasons, the difference between summer and winter. <laughs> there can be other factors that contribute to that. But I don't believe that the nights would be longer in the wintertime. Um, you know, we made the decision a long time ago not to worry too much about the astronomy. Um, and I think that we should stick with that. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's I think it's more of... Um, um, yeah, I mean, Ellen, I like the idea of winter as a like a, a kind of counterattack of Morgoth's. Um, well, you know, it also could have been in the music. Remember how in the beginning when they formed Middle Earth and, yes. you know, they would almost talking about and snowflakes and, down, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And he would, do, he yeah. would counter them. So I could totally see that being also the case with even climate. You know, they make it warm and Melkor comes along and makes a band that's not, you know, that's polar or something. I don't know. Right. Polar's not right. Really the right word. But. Right. And I agree, Phil, it is possible that the sun, um, the sun could change where it go like that is it doesn't always have to go in exactly the same track right it can mm-hmm. it can shift and go further to the north and go further to the south that wouldn't necessarily change the length of the day or night but it would change the temperature the temperature um it's true uh but having there be a more combative element to it i think to me is perfectly fine i suspect um so yeah. Anyway, as we said before, I don't want to worry too much about the astronomy. Um, I think that we don't have to worry about it too much. I don't think that we talk about it at all. But um, but I, I have no problems with seasons. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep, yeah. Phil points out that. 
Yavanna might want the sun to move around and distribute light to her plants more evenly. Um, yeah, she might. She might. She might put in a particular request of that kind. Who knows? Um, the moon would have phases based on its proximity to the sun, right? And like whether, you know, so because he's on, uh, you know, uh, he is uneven in his course. Uh, but again, I don't think so. Are there phases of the moon? Sure. I think we can have phases of the moon. Um, but again, we don't need to explain why we have phases of the moon because a different explanation, we can have different explanations. We are not, uh, as Trish said, we are not tied to the scientific or astronomical explanations of things in our world, right? Because it is very clear, whatever might be the future destiny of this world, this world is not yet our world because it is flat and our world is not. And so therefore, by definition, it cannot operate under exactly the same rules. Um, uh, Yeah. So anyway, um, more kind of mythic explanations of um, of many of these things, like winter being, uh, you know, the cold breath of Morgoth spreading out over the land, or an eclipse yeah. being an attack upon the sun, right? I mean, these kinds of mythic explanations can be, at least to some extent, quite literally true. Like that we, We're still kind of in that world here in the early Silmarillion, um, uh, especially, you know, before the making of the world flat and the separation of Valinor. I mean, there's a, there's a major metaphysical change that happens beyond the purely physical and astronomical change, uh, of the making of the world when the round. Round. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, that's going to yeah. be a big so deal. There's... I mean, that we'll have to spend some time on that in season 17 for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No question. Um, or 20. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Time, I, didn't we talk about timekeeping previously? I think uh, in we terms kind of, of how the elves, uh, Phil and Marie and the and the Grant gang can probably set us straight on that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they use the trees in Valinor. They use the trees in Valinor, but here they use the sun. Sun. And we do have years of the and sun. And the moon, now. I assume, right? Because is the moon now? Is the moon going to have phases? That's another thing. I don't even know. If no, the moon yeah, has we phases. talked about. We briefly mentioned that. I think that they should have phases. The moon should have okay. phases. Um, but again, it's not necessarily for the same reasons. But that's fine. Like it's for us. Yeah. Well, I think, it, like you say, if it's doing like if the sun is doing sort of a spiral trajectory, then I think you could probably argue that because that's the whole deal. It's right. It's the shadow of yeah. us and the sun, and you know, you could still have that effect on, on the yeah. moon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> Phil says someone needs to set up a simulation. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. Um, yeah, let's a science do a project. That would yeah. be a great science project. Uh, how, uh, season vari- how the flat, seasonal variations flat in a flat earth. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Um, <laughs> oh, and you've done that science project? There we go. Yeah. Flat Earth astronomy. Um, yeah. But we okay. have to make it flat Middle Earth astronomy to make exactly. sure we are flat Middle Earth astronomy. Yeah. That's, That's it. right. That's it. Okay. We've got that mythic side of it and everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are we, are we going on to the next slide? Okay. Uh, we are. Exciting. Next slide. Oh, my God. Next slide. Here we go. Magic swords. Okay. 
So we're reforging Ringel. We have Telcar, and we're going to bring in Narsil later on. Of course, we're going to have Anglachel and stuff as we move forward, too. How do we want to depict these scenes? Is it solely Smithcraft with a forge and fire, or is there some singing involved? Is it private secretive, or is there something you can do in front of others? I think you can do it in front of others. I don't think it has to be private. Um, well, I think if it is private, there may be some that, like, Ale may do private, right? And if it is private, there's something not off about doing it private. You know what I mean? There's something like an yeah. ulterior motive that's questionable or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. That it should be public. And if it isn't public, then hmm, something's not, something's hinky there. Right. Exactly. I would, my suggestion as far as secrecy is concerned, that ale should be secretive. Yes. And that is like a huge red flag. Right. Right. Exactly. Huge red flag. Um, so in fact, like that can be a conversation point you know, between um, uh, Telkar and Aeol, right? Aeol, you know, Telkar sees the Black Swords and is like, well, you kept that quiet, right? You know, like it, yeah, can be, yeah. it can be kind of a big deal um, that, you know, he did that on his own alone. Ringgill's reforging, I think, should be not exactly a public ceremony necessarily, but um, should... I would think it would be celebratory too, you know, I mean, right? I mean, not necessarily like fireworks and all that stuff, but still something really publicly acknowledged as something special. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think that would something that would be a very public event, the re the reforging of Ringil. Um Now on the other hand, I could see dwarves being secretive and that could be actually even where Ale gets encouraged to be secretive about his forging. Don't you think? I mean, not secretive in the sense of yeah. dwarves among, you know, what's, you know, stays with the dwarves and not, Public Nick is calling on that as well, but I want to, I want to, uh, let's, I'm not sure about this. Okay. So secrecy and the dwarves. Yes. The dwarves are secretive to other peoples. Right. To other but peoples. among themselves? Not to themselves. No, I agree. Among themselves. That's what I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure that the, I mean, are there I don't think we're talking about trade secrets here, right? Like, I can't let you watch me reforging my magic sword or else you might figure out how to reforge oh, magic swords. Yeah. Just I was powerful. actually thinking psychologically that dwarves just wouldn't be, you know, they're kind of already on the defensive anyway, being sort of foster children. And, you know, it's kind of like it's nobody else's business but ours kind of thing. Not trade secret wise, but just they're like ultimate introverts as a society. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, yeah. No, I mean, Nick, I agree with you that dwarves are not merely xenophobic. They're jealous in a way that other people aren't. Yes. Jealous, yes, but... Defensive, I would almost say. Like, yes. defensive. Like, the whole foster child thing, you know? I mean, it's something that kind of is ingrained in them. They're not really... They were add-ons that Eru said, oh, okay, I'll adopt them. And I assume they know that, even if they don't know it consciously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually talking this way, though, it makes the whole thing with Ale even stand out. The fact that they would even include him. Yes. Um, yes. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. So I'm thinking more. We do get this. to this later, right? I mean, we do get to the dwarves being this way later. I, is what you're pondering is, are they that way now? Is that what you're kind of pondering? Because I. I mean, I don't think it's a question that they definitely become not not xenophobic, but very insular. The specific later. 
question right. that I'm pondering is, what kind of community is there among dwarvish craftsmen? That's mm -hmm. the specific. Like, so I got do it. they tell her? Do they share recipes? <laughs> yeah. Does she share recipes? Would she teach others? Would they? I mean, is it? Are they? Do they jealously guard the secrets of their own craftsmanship? They jealously possess the fruits of their own craftsmanship, right? I mean, but that mm -hmm. doesn't seem to me the same thing or necessarily attached. Like, if you are, if you have a very uh, high opinion of property rights, you know, like if that is to say, if you, so you, you know, that you forged it, you own it. Right. And nobody else has any rights to it. That's a different thing than saying, and you're not willing to like show anybody how to do what you can do at the forge. Right. 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 Those two things right. could be connected with each other, but that's what I mean by trade secrets. Right. Um, I don't know that they would necessarily be like, I've developed a secret technique to make my, the swords I make more awesome, but I'm not going to share it with anybody else. Cause I want my swords to carry on being more awesome than everybody else's swords. I, I don't know that dwarves would necessarily think that way. At least I'm not assuming that they would. Um, they might. I'm not, it's certainly that kind of thinking would be consistent with the kind of jealous ownership concept, but it doesn't seem to me inescapably connected with it. Um, now Maria's recalling, of course, the mortality of the dwarves. And how there would have to be a master passing on to the student, you know, trade secrets or else, you know, they're going to have to reinvent things every generation. Um, Wouldn't you think we'd see more of like an apprentice journeyman kind of thing going on in dwarf right. society, craft society? Yes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, elves, I don't think it would even cross their minds. Next generation, what does that mean? Well, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so in that, I mean, the one, because see, the, the clearest example of this kind of jealousy that we get is Feanor, right? Never telling anybody how he made the Silmarils. Right. That's right. Um, I would... Yeah. And again, I one of the things I think that I'm pushing against is I wouldn't want to get too... I think it's easier to get too sort of... I don't know, stereotyped isn't the right word. Too exaggerated? Too sort of whitewashing, right? And being like the dwarves are, are kind of, uh, you know, they're all jealous and, 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 and territorial. I think we go too far with that. Or we could go too far with that. Um and I'm not sure, like I say, I, 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 I'm not opposed to at least some of them thinking like this. I'm not, I'm just not sure that I would necessarily want it to be. And I'm thinking about how dwarves talk about it, right? Um, I mean, there's definitely like an in-house dwarf thing, but, uh, but I, it's not obvious to me when dwarves are talking about the works of their fathers or the, you know, that they are. Cause they make stuff for other people all the time. I'm, I'm thinking of course here, especially of the Hobbit, right. And Thorne's description of the old culture of the lonely mountain. Um, 
you know, they'd sell their stuff all the time. And people who don't want, you know, their secrets in circulation would tend not to do that. Um, and yes, Nick, uh, the Hobbit does say something about people coming to be apprentices of the dwarves. Yes, it does. Um, that's why I'm contemplating this distinction between openness of craft, right? That the dwarves delight in smithcraft and are happy to teach people smithcraft, uh, and to learn from them and to teach them and to learn from them. Um, but they are jealous of the materials or of the product, right? So like if, if you make, you know, just within dwarf culture, the like you made it, you own it, uh, you know, unless you give it or, you know, you can give it, you can sell it. That's not like that's forbidden, but the kind of the presumpt, I would think that there would be a strong cultural assumption towards ownership, right? Um, the idea of somebody else just like making off with something that somebody else made would be like an appalling, unthinkable thing in, uh, in Dwarvish culture. Um, so theft would be like one of the capital crimes, right? Um, because nobody can understand it. Um, but yeah, Tony, I don't know that I would go quite as far as the goblins in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Um, Where uh, they have such a strong idea of ownership that, like, if something is that, like, when uh, when they sell something to a human, the goblins understand that the price paid doesn't uh, constitute transfer of ownership, but just usage of the thing for the lifetime of the human. So when the human dies, it's rightfully goblin property again. That's the concept that Rowling puts forward in uh, the Deathly Hollows. Uh, hellos, not hollows. That's different. Um, uh, I I don't know that they would go as far as that. I don't think we need to go quite as far. But, you know, in that kind of direction. Um, yeah. Um, William asks, how would this contrast with Silmaril ownership? Well... It wouldn't, other than Fanor's even more obsessive about it. Um, uh, yeah, I name them unto myself forever. Uh, it, it, you know, I would think the dwarves could get behind that sentiment, right? Um, remember, it's Aule who is like, hang on, guys, you know, this is a big deal. This, you're asking a lot of him here. Right. When it came to the question of the breaking of. So I would think the dwarves also would very much understand uh, Fanor's issue there. Um, but I would think that the, but that impulse, Fanor's impulse. um Fanor's impulse is st that's still a little twisted, though. And I would think that his secrecy about the Silmarils, just as when Fanor in Valinor shuts up the Silmarils 
and doesn't let other people see them, that's countercultural, right? I would suspect right. I would suspect that his secrecy about how he made the Silmarils would also be countercultural. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think that the general Noldor culture would be celebrating the skill, people's skill of hands, right? So if there's something that you develop that could help another artist use it themselves in a new and different way to create another and even more glorious thing, that's what you do, right? Um, so the idea that someone would, like, do some kind of advance, you know, would be responsible for some kind of novel advance uh, in technique and would not share that technique with anyone else, I would think would be at least a little um, mm-hmm. countercultural. Like, I'm going to take these most beautiful things that I've made and I'm not going to let anybody else see them is countercultural and alarming. Um, a, a, certainly a red flag. Um, so... And and what's more, I also think that the Noldor would not have the same sense of ownership over things. They would, like, the making of the thing is its own reward. The fact that the thing is exists and is being appreciated and like being used and appreciated and enjoyed, like that's the thing that they would want, right? They wouldn't hoard it. They wouldn't um, necessarily keep it to themselves. Again, I'm not saying no Noldor ever does this. I'm just saying I think it's I don't I don't think that should be the dominant note of the culture. Um uh, I think that with the that seems to me the primary distinction with the dwarves. Both of them love craftsmanship. Both of them at least inside their own cultures share techniques, share learning. Um but the big difference is that the dwarves hold on to the things um, and have a much stronger view of um, possessiveness and property ownership than the Noldor do. I'm brainstorming here. This is me thinking off the top of my head. I'm not. I can be convinced otherwise, but that's the um, that's the direction I'm kind of thinking there. Yeah, exactly. Nick is pointing out how the Noldor give their gems freely to the Teleri. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's the model that I'm kind of thinking of there. Um, and yes, the idea of hoarding things, Marie, shows a twisted relationship to craft. Uh, the dwarves um, don't necessarily... It's not like all dwarves are born with dragon sickness necessarily, right? Um, but but uh, it is... Uh, it is a, I would think it's a, it, it is an evil that they are more prone to. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Well, I've strayed away from, and, and I've, I've both strayed away from the main topic here and I am running out of time. So let's come back to this one. We'll, 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 we'll do more about magic swords. So the, the two questions that we still have to think more about are, uh, as far as the magic swords are concerned, are what is the process? Like, uh, wherein does the magic lie and how does, how do we want to depict that? Uh, and then specific, also design questions. Um, for swords and thoughts on shield designs and stuff. So we'll we'll talk about some of that stuff more um, uh, later on. So we'll come back to the magic sword question. But we didn't, we did we did accomplish some things with the magic sword. Um, awesome. Well, this was just as much fun as I hoped. I am telling you, this has been this kind of thing. This is why we digress so often. 
thinking through these kinds of things, right? Doing this kind of adaptation world building as we're thinking of kind of taking these things here and there that Tolkien says about this stuff and really kind of uh, living there, right? Really kind of developing that into, uh, you know, answering some of these broader questions that the texts themselves in no way answer or could answer. This is to me one of the most uh, entertaining elements of film film from the beginning. So these creative sessions where we get to do nothing but that, oh my gosh, that is such a privilege. Uh, so thanks everybody for joining me for this today. Um, uh, that was really great. I look forward to our next, so next session will be, we're still back on schedule. So the 31st, two weeks from now, uh, is when we will, uh, be back, uh, for our next session. And at that time, we will talk about episodes five and six. Um, so have we, we, we already laid a lot of groundwork for the marathon or thought what's going on in the background. What are people eating and drinking and doing? Um, and we will begin thinking through the actual plot and story of that episode, uh, as well as episode six as the, uh, 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 rumors and suspicions about the kinslaying are spreading across the land. So, um, excellent. Thanks everybody, uh, for joining us today. And, uh, thanks Trish for all of your Be contributions bad. and help as always. Uh, and, uh, and I will say, as I always do, thanks for listening and Godspeed.